It's a Sunday night in the U.S., so let's get into it. Where's the air horn? I got a headline. Go for it. All right. So we've got Facebook admits it sent misinformation researchers flawed data. Uh, reports the Washington yes. Post that Facebook provided a data set to consortium of social scientists last year that serious errors. Uh, yep. The ultra short version is that apparently they said, here's essentially where politic people are clicking on some ridiculous amount of 42 trillion numbers. One of the anonymized data says one of the largest in social science history. It just so happened that the United States version of the data set didn't include, um, uh, you know, like uh, half of the people that basically were unaligned politically. So all those social scientists that published all those Facebook articles um, kind of had no, not worthless conclusions, but pretty close. But it's okay because they'll get to write more papers on the on the on the retraction and the conclusion and updating the numbers and such. I I, I only wondered like how many different political meetings happen between now and and then you know in the meanwhile of of you know that might have relied on that data, but you know it happens. But they apologized, so it's all good. I mean, basically every Life is good. Yeah, I mean, sorry about that. Like stuff Oops. Oops. Oopsie doopsie. Oh, sad about it. Oh, yeah. yeah, we're so we're so terribly sad about this. By the way, uh, governments, do you mind if we use our digital wallet and our digital currency for the world's currency while we're at this? I mean. <laughs> <laughs> It's not like we didn't have to forget to include half the population and no one would call bullshit on this essentially for a good part of a year or two with things. It's like that might be a thing, right? I'm more impressed that the researchers didn't call BS on some of these things because you'd think that some of those signals wouldn't line up with something else. Um, anyways, I, 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 I sent you the link over the back. Yeah, we, we talked about it, I think, oh, when we met on Saturday and it, I uh, went on a big... There's old news already. <laughs> That was it. Was actually the no. It was the, like one of the first stories we read on Saturday, and I went on to a whole, you know, how how Zuck wants to, you know, do something with your what, you know, you can't trust that guy. I mean, this is just. I mean, it would be it would be one thing if this was like, I don't know, some startup who you know never had a problem, and then this happens. <laughs> And then you would be like, oh, well, this is uncharacteristic of Facebook to do this. It's clearly it's a mistake. No, this happens very, very. This has been happening consistently throughout the history of Facebook. So we, we're not going to think this is a mistake. We're going to think that this is a very intentional. They intentionally didn't provide all of the researching communities with the data that they needed to do their research and intentionally left out the juicy, juicy elements and data that they wanted to use to do proper research. Um, it's just too characteristic of everything they've done to date. So it's like, how how are we going to trust you to do a currency again? Like, uh, it's bizarre. Just bizarre. Okay, so the shall we do the top big crazy stories? That one is, by the way, in my still, even though we read it on Saturday, I think I saw that in the big list. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Facebook? Yes. From New York Times, internal emails. The data Facebook provided to researchers studying misinformation since 2019 included about half of its U.S. users, not all of it. Not at, not all as it claimed. Um. More than three years ago, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook trumpeted a plan to share data with researchers about how people interacted. And we're going to help you. We're going to help. We're just going to be so nice to you. We're that friendly neighbor that's just going to help you. We're going to give you all the data. And you think it's all great. And then it turns out we actually left out the data. The real data that you really wanted. 
And then they probably use that essentially when they're talking to lobbyists and antitrust and other people about how hey, we're responsible. No, so can, but, but, but by the way, it, there's another implication, which is that that data actually shows that they're even worse than we people assumed. And they knew essentially all those published articles with all that shit with things that was the nice cleaned up version. Right. Like that 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 the thing is a cesspool of misinformation and it's causing political division and and by the way, uh former super senior people at Facebook who helped build make Facebook what it is today say the same that they won't let their family or kids use it, that it is uh, become a weaponized by foreign governments, and it's the division in America today about uh, you know the extreme of left and right is in no small part attributable to Facebook. There's a there you there's go. A, a, you you fucked up. You fu- you fucked up the world's greatest democracy. <laughs> what a legacy! <laughs> Move fast and break democracy. There's a thing with a trend with essentially executives at tech companies sending their kids to tech free schools or places where they can basically be like, oh, I want to story it up, but with essentially like things where they don't have to touch electronics and things. And it's like, meanwhile, everyone else gets YouTube kids and, you know, Instagram kids and everything else. It's like, but not the executives, not their kids. They get a tech free existence. I, I saw a great tweet uh, a few hours ago, which is how at some point, like the Russia was making, they had a, a funny plan to by like american tv news networks like nbc abc and whatnot right the communists like this is back in the 60s 70s 80s and we were like oh hell no we're not gonna let you buy you know our main uh channels (laughs) what could have been and you know hell no we can't let the commies buy our you know nbc abc cbs and all of our big media channels but yet and then they get it the the tweet was about but yet the CCP controls the algorithms of TikTok, and as Russia and China been have been going hog wild on influencing Twitter and Facebook, you know, ever since they started. You know, it's it's kind of a fun thing to imagine alternative universe with things. If if things got a little differently, like instead of buying out Bam Tech, Disney was was on the on the thing to buy out Twitter. That would have been a very strange alternate world right here, where essentially, like you know, the the the, the three circles mouse company essentially determined whether or not politicians get kicked on and off the platform. And, and so and so China very wisely prohibited you know Facebook and all of those apps from entering China. Because they knew, I mean, holy cow, uh, you know, they had, they are not paranoid to think that those platforms would have been weaponized inside of China. So the, the first big crazy story uh, of today, the most popular story of today is still the aftermath of the epic, of the epic uh, versus Apple lawsuit where uh different journalists are taking turns saying who won the lawsuit how epic won or apple won and they're debating if epic won or apple won and based on what appeals or something like epic's actually appealing it with stuff correct that's right. The gabby part about this is we might, if if they end up t- if they end up getting like a hearing for that with things, and then, then that that'd be great. More headlines and and, and more e discovery. It'd be great. And, and for example, the for example, the Washington Post's version of the headline is Apple called its epic ruling a huge win, 
yet it wasn't, according to Will Oremus at the Washington Post. Its app store business survived an antitrust challenge, mostly intact, but the judge ruling leaves it on shaky ground. And that's a fair summary. Um, Apple claimed a huge win Friday after a federal judge ruled that the game developer Epic Game had failed to show that its app store holds a monopoly in the mobile gaming market, but a closer read of the verdict suggests it was less an Apple win than an Epic fail. Uh, success is not illegal, Judge Yvonne Gonzalez Rogers wrote, ruling against most of the Fortnite developers' antitrust claims. Her decision allows Apple to keep its own app store as the exclusive market for apps in its iOS devices and to keep taking a 30% cut of users' purchases uh, on many of those apps, a fee that Epic and other developers argue is too steep. No doubt that comes as a big relief to Apple for which the App Store is a major source of revenue, growth, and profit. However, it does let apps uh, charge directly, for lack of a better word, uh, other in other payment systems other than Apple's default in-app payment system. You have alternative payment systems, which means you don't have to pay the 30% cut if you don't want to. You just have to create a separate payment system. Yeah, which is great. So, yeah, who... Is that a win for Apple? No, that ain't a win for Apple. But it, the point is, it's not a, the big win that Epic wanted either. So uh, Epic's appealing. So that's the big story. The n- second biggest story. Can can I rain on people's parade a little bit? I'm going to make sure. a weird prediction here. Go ahead. Okay. Lots of apps, if they cost anything or what, an, a dollar? Yes. The transaction charge for a credit card is 25 cents just to even swipe it. And then three percent. So you're going to be hearing uh, you're going to be hearing at the end that the small guy is going to be making less money. That's my prediction. Okay. So the next headline, not surprisingly, is um, a preview of the big event tomorrow. It's being that it's Monday in Europe and Asia. By tomorrow, we mean Tuesday, and Tuesday morning uh, Pacific time, Tuesday evening you know, Asia, Europe time, Tuesday afternoon, Europe time, will be the the big annual Apple event where they release and preview the new iPhone, iPhone 13. And Kuo, who I've determined is a guy, uh, Asian guy, who is the, the, the king of all Apple Intel, um, says what to expect at this event on Tuesday is the iPhone 13 lineup, which will be the same phones as last time basically uh but with various upgrades and notably there should be a one terabyte version of the phone i can't believe there's a terabyte of memory in a phone now like who's doing the chips is it tsmc or is it going to be they're going to like the pull 180 and say well the government's paying us to do uh, uh, intel now like uh, that would be interesting on the 13 it's still tsmc has some something in the phone for sure because there was headlines of Two months ago, about how Apple said their their supply chain was going to be more secure than everyone else's through TSMC. TSMC had to you know choose whose orders they were going to fulfill, and they chose Apple's because Apple was more than any other singular company was responsible for TSMC's growth. And so the the phone. Let me find. There was a better version of this. Oh, here it is. What to expect tomorrow? Here's what to expect. You've got. The iPhone 13, same design, new camera features, including a video version of portrait mode they call cinematic video. So it'll have a background blurring effect, which photographers call bokeh. So you'll now have this 
uh, it lo- makes it look like you have a much more expensive camera than you do when the background is blurred and, and the foreground is not. And they do that by cheating with this, you know, doing it algorithmically, essentially, by recognizing the foreground image, just like they do in portrait mode. And but people, it'll make more cinematic looking videos for sure. And then a faster processor, of course, like every year they update the processor, updated screens with the new LTPO, low temperature polycrystalline oxide, which is the same screen on the Apple Watch, which uh, does mainly two things. It's a much less power consumption, which means it might be an always on screen like the Apple Watch was when it switched over to LTPO. And it also allows for faster refresh rates. So the iPhone still hasn't, believe it or not, a 90 uh, refresh rate. And uh, most of the phones in that price category are at 120 already, which give it a much snappier kind of feel. It feels like it's a real display, not a digital flicking display. The 90 uh, hertz refresh rate, your brain can still sense that this is a digital object and not a it feels magically real at 120 versus 90 it's a it's hard to describe um it's almost like a subconscious thing but you consciously notice the difference for sure so that's finally coming and a lot of people have been were disappointed that that 120 refresh rate wasn't included in the iphone 12 actually and then this whole satellite phone emergency call feature the sos distress feature where you're able to send messages in emergencies pretty much anywhere if you go hiking or whatnot. And then additional to the phone is the Apple Watch 7 with a new design, larger screen, faster processor, and but not any notable major upgrades other than the aesthetics of the larger screen and flat screen, that the upgraded health sensors are expected to come next year. And what else for Apple? New AirPods. It's now being Kuo is confirming that the iPods 3s are happening as part of the event. And which are not the iPod Pros, but uh, this what they look similar. Uh, it'll be curious to see what the difference really is. Also, a redesigned iPad mini and ninth generation iPad and the M1X MacBook Pros, 14-inch and 16-inch MacBook Pros, which a whole, oh boy, are a lot of people waiting for that, myself included, so that you can do proper video editing on a 14-inch or 16-inch, you know, machine. Currently, the only the 13-inch machines have, as far as I understand, the MacBook, thir- there's nothing bigger than a 13, Chris, currently, that runs M- the M1 chips. Yeah. Or you have the 21-inch uh, iMac. iMac. Right. Yeah. So, but this, uh, I mean, and more importantly, p- people are going to be paying key attention to how much better is the M1X compared to the M1. The M1 was a game changer for Apple laptops when uh, and the iMac when it was released a year ago. And now that this M1X is coming out, now this is version 2 of Apple's internal system on a chip. Um, and let's see how much progress they can make with that thing. Yeah, in to put it how much has Intel been sitting on their asses for so long that basically another co- company can basically just you know replicate the stack this quickly? I mean, it's really kind of sad. It's the it's the risk versus sys going from complex to re- reduced instruction set, and so like single core performance, uh, uh, Cinebench seventeen hundred, uh, like a core i 9s at like eleven hundred. 
and then uh, multi-core 7500 um the i9 you know because it's got 10 cores is higher but you know this is a thousand dollar macbook air <laughs> it's really crazy how powerful they are yeah but these will be the macbook pros and it says in on these macbook pros it'll have magsafe charging of course and the mini led screens which is a notable upgrade to the screens and so they you have a much smaller bezel as well around the screen and no touch bars, thank God. And after delays, look out for these to hit shelves in the next several weeks. So that's it. Okay, so that was the second headline of today. What is number three? Uh, number three, also about Apple. Apple's now warning that long-term exposure to vibrations, like those from a high-powered motorcycle engine, can degrade iPhone's camera by damaging their gyroscopes. Who's going to announce a partnership with a major motorcycle company in the near future? <laughs> Apple today published a new support document warning iPhone users that the cameras on their devices can be damaged by exposure to high vibrations. The next one up is from, and again, these are, I don't generate the list of the top uh stories based on you know engagement online uh, this number four happens to be by my friend mark suster for, uh, who's a fantastic vc based out of la uh one of the real pioneers of uh, and champions of creating the los angeles tech ecosystem which we call silicon beach although he personally hates that name don't ever call it silicon beach around mark he likes to call it la tech but um because he doesn't like to, even though he's right on the beach in Santa Monica, he can't be closer to the beach himself. But um, he, you know, it limits the debate. Is you know, it limits the, and it it, it kind of uh, isn't fair to all of the other geeks who aren't on the beach. And it kind of implies that it's only limited to the beach when it's not. And he doesn't like that name because he thinks you know it, it implies that we're not serious or whatnot. But it was incredibly helpful name when we were growing the ecosystem back in 2007, 8, 9, 10, 11, because it gave, let people know what part of L.A. where the community was kind of focused, which was kind of near the beach in Santa Monica. So anyway, the fourth biggest article of today is from Mark Suster, fantastic VC, the best VC in Southern California, and deserves tons of credit for making the L.A. tech ecosystem happen. And... Uh, he wrote a blog post on his blog called Both Sides of the Table, but the the blog post is called A Look at the State of the VC Industry from Overpaying in the Face of Absurd Valuations to Big Bets on Decentralized 3.0 Apps, Cybersecurity, and more. And I'm going to tweet that out so that you can um, digest that uh, at your own pace. I just sent it to the Tech News Twitter account at TNATW. And he talks about what's changed in financing. And he, he's he's brilliant. And um, this blog post is a great one. And that's why it's going a bit viral in the startup investor community. And he says, where are things headed for VC in the next 10 years? He says, of course, I don't have a crystal ball. But if I look at the biggest energy in new company builders these days, it seems to me some big trends are. And he lists five. Here, here's what he thinks are the five things in the next 10 years. The growth of sustainability and climate investing, of which he's been fantastic in, in pushing that agenda uh, relative, you know, in the past few years. 
Number two, investments in Web 3.0 that broadly covers decentralized apps and possibly even decentralized autonomous organizations, which we call DAOs, D-A-Os. And which could imply that in the future, VCs need to be more focused on token value and monetization rather than equity ownership models. Number three, investments in the intersection of data, technology, and biology. One only needs to look at the rapid response of mRNA technologies by Moderna and Pfizer to understand the potential of this market segment. And he's referring to the HIV vaccine and the cancer vaccine. Holy cow, I can't even believe that is even a, a potential reality, but it is. And the uh, next... Cancer vaccines from Cuba, I think. I know. No, it was Bio, BioNTech is claiming to have one that they're trialing. I think they worked with Cuban scientists to get it. I I wish John was here. That would be amazing. If Yeah. Then number four is investments in defense technologies, including cybersecurity, drone surveillance, counter surveillance, and the like. We live in a hostile world, and it's now a tech-enabled hostile world. It's hard to imagine this doesn't drive a lot of innovations and investments. And he's right about that. And number five, the continued reinvention of global financial services industries through technology-enabled disruptions that are eliminating bloat, lethargy, and high margins. Yep, that's what tech does. It cuts out the fat. It removes the middlemen, as we call them. It dissolves barriers and boundaries of all kinds. That's what tech is doing. Last one is my favorite one, Tyler. I love it. Just yeah. rid of the legacy carriers. Yeah, it just dissolves boundaries of all kinds. If you are a boundary, you will be dissolved by technology eventually. Uh, what, what's Tyler. unique about Mark, though, uh, Tyler, just quickly, in terms of, like, you say he's brilliant, like, just speak into it a little bit. Yeah. What's unique about him? Yeah, yeah. I, I love Mark, personally, uh, and you can see that in the interviews that I've done with him. One I did about a year ago on video. It's, like, two hours long, um, and it's on our, the, te- the, on the Stockholm Tech youtube channel i'll try and find it. If somebody can find the link to it i'll retweet it and for, unfortunately the first 20 minutes he had bad audio although it was my fault that he had bad audio but we had to cut it out and he was praising me for helping him build the startup ecosystem in la and how we were reflecting very fondly on how we you know looking back you know and how successful it is today and how fantastic that is and that wasn't obvious that that was going to happen because silicon valley had such a a gravity and such a it was such a formidable you know force in the world you know in two thousand seven eight nine and and we were laughed at you know at the idea of even suggesting we could build a startup ecosystem so close geographically down the road in L A and here it is now and L A is like <laughs> booming going up uh, in a nice way at a time when Silicon Valley is um, lost its, you know, monopoly of power with with regard L- to tech. L- LA's got. Uh, I'm calling the shot right now. LA's got a a lot to it because remember we were always humongous when it came to aerospace and space. Mm-hmm. Like we, that was our thing. And entertainment and media. Yeah. You know. Both. 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 And both. Entertainment and and now you're you know because we're we're really looking at a service sector. Yep. As like kind of the next generation there's not a bigger service sector than in Los Angeles. So like, it's a perfect place to, you know, for talent and and, and new ideas to come about. So watch out for LA, everybody. Right. Hmm. I was going to say in biotech as well with, Oh yeah. Biotech up here, they call it, you know, the, uh, what, 
the the um the Silicon Valley for biotech. I don't I forgot the clever name they tried to come up with. Hmm. Check the hand raised, Tyler. Okay, and so anyway, but to answer your question, Dave, other other things I can say about Mark Suster, I have a lot of great personal stories. But for example, when I was doing, when I decided to do my own startup on my own, and it was about uh, building a tool for small mom and pop businesses and, and, and Burger Kings and, you know, people who owned Burger Kings and Subway sandwiches, you know, to give them a tool to fight against the negative reviews on Google reviews on Google Maps. And I did create a solution for that. And he said, don't do it. I said, why? He said, because you don't want to be, you don't want to build solutions for that audience. That's a very difficult audience to build software for because they don't know tech. They don't like tech. They're phobic about tech. And that's, you're just going to drive yourself nuts writing, doing customer service for them all the time. And he knew because he had, he's an enterprise sales guy. That's his whole bag. I mean, he sold his company to Salesforce and he knows about all of the customer service you're going to have. First, you build, you have your solution that you build, and then you have your customer support you're going to have to do based on your solution. Even after you sell it, you sell it, you get the money, you're getting the money, but now here comes this, how much customer touch is required after the fact. Tyler, I've got this mice. What do I do with it? Do I put it on right. the screen? Right, exactly. There it is. And so I promised I wouldn't talk about it, but I, I was going through my old hard drive today and I found like 20 years ago, I had a point of sale company and I talk about it here that I was like square before square. So I shared the receipts with Tyler and what he's saying is completely true. It's like, you know, we could revolutionize the small business owner's life, but they're like, I don't want internet in here. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You go in, go into a restaurant, talk to the owner and be like, I've got this tech thing. And they're like, whoa, no, 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 no. Like you're like, you're the antichrist coming with blood dripping down your face. And they're like, oh, get tech. No, get that out of here. And, you know, and then even if you do convince, show them that it's going to solve some of their biggest problems, which is the bad reviews for their business. They're like, okay, all right, it's going to stop all these bad reviews. Okay, let's do this. And then they're just on the phone with you endlessly. And then now they want you to fix their Wi-Fi router. And it's just endless. Absolute. Oh, my God. He was dead on. Those are not the people I wanted to spend the rest of my life having phone calls with about. Character building, though, Tyler. That's yes. why we've got you sharp today. You're and I said in that video, if somebody finds the video, I said to Mark, I was like, Mark, you know what? You told me don't do it. And I belligerently like a like a like a you know, like a petulant child was like, I'll show you dad. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I, I went off and did it. And boy, do I wish I had listened to Mark on that. And I said to him, I said, Mark, you were a hundred percent correct. Even though I proved him kind of wrong by building the business and doing it and it worked. However, he was precisely right about uh, the actual heavy duty part of it. And the what here's Mark's secret sauce in a, in a nutshell to me is he what he is a legit founder. He's a VC, but he still he cannot detach himself from his founder roots, and he cannot not tell you something. He will he will give you the tough love that you need to hear, founder to founder. Even though you don't want to take the bitter pill or the medicine, he's gonna he can't not tell it to you. He's like, listen, I know no other investor is going to tell you this. I know this is probably going to make you hate me and not let 
not want you want not 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 inspire you to let me be an investor in your company because you think I'm the bad guy because I'm the one that's going to tell you the bad news that no one else is going to tell you. But here's the bad news that somebody needs to tell you, and I'm just I care enough about you to tell you because I would rather you know it and hate me and not let me invest and let all all my friends invest than to not tell you. Yeah, beautiful. I could, I could. Good morning, everyone. Hi, Tanner. Thanks, Cheryl. Um, I could actually vouch from vouch from the music business. I mean, I remember twenty years ago when you know technology was just coming in. I started consulting for. I forgot their name. It was an Australian company that was probably like the first people to offer how they can monetize. Uh, you know, selling digital. Uh, audio goods and and to be able to safely use your you know credit cards on the system and at that point I mean we were just figuring out what an email address was so you know it was just they were just absolutely against anything kind of new in tech and they didn't think it was going to last they didn't think anybody would ever trust it it wouldn't go anywhere you know I remember the plug-in conference I think it was um, when it first came in they were talking about it I mean everybody was just laughing it off and and I knew that I know I didn't know much about any of it back then, but I knew that that's exactly where I was going. And also, just um, I was um, I was just coming online when uh, when you guys were talking. The um, the guys who created the BioNTech vaccine, it's actually it's a uh, it's a lab in Germany. I think uh, Chris, you were also asking. The guy's name is Ur Shaheen because he's Turkish German. U G U R U G U R Shaheen S H A I N. So he's the one. He's the uh, the lab guy in uh, Germany, and and uh, I know this because uh, you know obviously here in Turkey a lot of people are using his vaccine, and he's you know been written about all over the place. So if you want to check him out, it's him. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I brought up two folks to the stage, Garov and Chen, who are newbies. Everybody else on the stage, Neda is relatively new, but everybody else has been here for many, many months as we meet twice a day every day. So a quick welcome to Garov and Chen, uh, or uh, Zhi Xuan, uh, who's from, I, I see from your bio, you're in Hong Kong. And Garov, I imagine from your name that you're in India. And um, originally. Uh, so anyway, feel free to pop in if you have thoughts here. The I want to get into the next biggest yes, article. Hi, yes, Nessie. Yay. Hi, hi, everybody. Um, I was just going to add a, a very quick my five cents in this one. You know, the moms and pops businesses, uh, they are small, right? So they can only afford to pay a few things, like not gazillion, right? So I, I have a cousin who has a small business in, in, uh, in, um, in Maine, and he hired someone to do the digital marketing and the website and the stuff. And because, you know, the payment they do is not like corporate America, these guys are not delivering what they promised to deliver because they have so many clients. So, so he was just beside himself. So the adaption, the teaching and all that was exactly what he was resistant all about. And it's exactly the same here in Ethiopia on the ground as well. So, uh, you know, there are a lot of IT people who are offering a lot of good solutions with a little pay. And all these new people who are trying to adapt technology 
are not getting the services that they have been promised, including myself. You know, I hired my web designer. I fired him. I tried to get into it myself and, and it just all those things. So I think we need to come up with, you know, affordable, but at the same time, quality delivery of tech services so that, you know, the digital economy adoption with mom and pops and other small businesses can, can happen, you know, easily and seamlessly. That's, yes. That's well, here's an interesting point, which is now when we say mom and pop businesses, you have a bunch of quote unquote mom and pop businesses run by the people who are, let's say, 30 years old. And your average 30 year old actually did kind of grow up with tech. And it's, you know, so now you can have mom and pops that are not phobic of tech the way, uh, unlike 10 years ago, because you didn't have 20 year olds starting mom and pop businesses. The 30, the people who are now 40, that's kind of like the cutoff point, like the, the plus 40 year olds. And even they're getting better because they've had a smartphone now for at least a few years. But uh, 10 years ago, oh my goodness, it was it uh, a bit tricky. And, and that's kind of changing. And that opens up a huge, and that's why Shopify can happen now. That's why it is happening now. That's why digitization of mom and pops is now just finally now in 2021 starting to happen. And as Mark says in the in the summary of his blog post that I just tweeted, he says, uh, as the tentacles of technology get deployed further into industry and further into government, it's only going to accelerate the number of dollars that pour into the ecosystem and in turn fuel innovation and value creation. And about that, he's dead on, which is governments have figured out tech and they want all kinds of solutions. And cybersecurity is going to be a trillion dollar industry and governments want tech of all kinds and startups are going to enable that. And then it's, and, and you're going to see headlines like we saw on Friday about how big tech is in bed with uh, the, the Department of Defense and the Pentagon and big tech made trillions of dollars off of the war on terror. And they're, you know, and how their uh, big tech is in is. Uh, an, an accomplice in the battle against black and brown people as you know journalists are going to write these insane ridiculous stories just because government agencies are now using tech and in the article in the last paragraph concedes uh, all of this this you know billions of dollars that went to big tech it's because they're using amazon uh google and microsoft cloud services yeah that's their storage of their fucking files it doesn't mean they're in the battle against brown people like give me a fucking break Tech government's going to use tech just like everybody else is, so that's just the new reality. Like, like we're not going to expect government agencies to use technology. Government agencies are actually largely responsible for the fucking internet itself. It was called DARPA. Look into it. So, uh, you know, to accuse them of using tech that they themselves play the key role in enabling, you know, this journalist is just a complete you know, nimwit as usual when it comes to the relationship of tech. So... Hey, Tyler, can, 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 if I could just make one quick point. One sure. of the, the things on the federal level that keeps, like, some of the newer tech out isn't that they don't want it, is that the big companies, and it could be anybody, it could be, you know, Boeing or it could be Google or whomever, they they, they, they sue each other all the time claiming that the process wasn't uh, wasn't fair. Yes. Amazon, Amazon and Microsoft constantly sue each other Correct. when one of them loses for a government contract yes. and nothing happens. Right. Yeah. 
Well, it's because those contracts are so incredibly lucrative. You're talking billion dollar contracts. And those are super huge battles. Like for when LA Unified School District, which I was teaching at at the time, there was a huge battle between Google and Microsoft to build the whole cloud email systems for and security systems for, you know, a massive school uh, district with, you know, thousands of schools. And it's, um, they compete intensely for those massive contracts. And when one of them wins it, there's always a lawsuit about to investigate if it was done fairly and everything. It's kind of bizarre. But uh, that's that's an indication of governments have figured out tech. So the, the next big article is a study of 61,000 Microsoft employees shows the shift to remote work has hurt communication and collaboration, threatening productivity and long-term innovation. A new study finds that Microsoft's company-wide shift to remote work has hurt communication and collaboration among different business groups inside Microsoft. And one might make the joke that, well, that's because they're using Microsoft Teams as their, which is a exactly a shitty product and if they were using zoom it might actually be a little bit better because they're spending half of that hour-long meeting saying uh, can you hear me i can't I, I can't get my camera to work i can't my microphone work oh shit you know oh bobby bob can't get in the meeting everybody oh shit bob can somebody send bob the phone call and your hour-long meetings that used to be an hour long are now 30 minutes long because bob can't get on the call so yeah I, I, I'm not surprised, Microsoft, that your uh, productivity has gone down. I'm generally skeptical of the data sets that they use for the pre and post testing, though, because to measure productivity inside an organization is inherently like very difficult. Sure. I mean, very very few of them really even track feature release and benefits outcomes. Like, so I imagine this is done more of a kind of rudimentary kind of um, how many hours or something. I, I haven't got I haven't got any facts on it, Tyler, but you know what I mean. Like, for yeah. me to say. Hey, hey, how how productive was Netflix this quarter? I mean, it's it's like a little bit subjective, right? So there, yeah. The the it says based on previous research, we believe that the shift to less rich communication media may have made it more difficult for workers to convey and process complex information. Like somehow you're limited through Zoom calls to express yourself. I. I guess, you know, not as much hand waving, I guess, based on, and then it says the study is based on analysis of anonymized data about emails, calls, meetings, and other work activities by Microsoft employees as part of a wave of new research released Thursday morning by Microsoft and LinkedIn about the state of work in the pandemic. It comes as COVID-19 Delta variant causes many companies to delay plans to return to the office. A separate study assessed Microsoft employee sentiment based on internal surveys. And there is two key points here. It says Microsoft employees report that their feelings of inclusion and support from managers are at all-time highs, according to the company. On average, the survey also indicates that Microsoft employees feel just as productive as before. So there's a counter survey. That's yeah, this, this is, I mean, this is just, you know, the way we talk about getting the animals back into the zoo, you're going to see these reports, just very self-serving ones, basically saying, oh, you know, this productivity has gone way down, you know, just get back in the office. I'm a bit, um, yeah, do you know what I mean? They're going to put these out whenever they want to put it, out an announcement saying get in the office. I'm totally man. in with Dave. It, it's a good thing that that stack ranking system that they use for internal employee performance reviews and stuff that, you know, is the up and out type kind of thing that, uh, 
uh, that they're, 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 whether or not they get fired or promoted is saying how productive they are. I'm sure they're going to basically say, oh, yeah, productivity is just nosedived, essentially. And I, that, that, but that's everyone else. It's not what me. about what about a gamified, anonymized, stack-ranking you know, system where you can, almost like you're on a Peloton race, you can see how productive you're being versus other folks in the company? I mean, a lot of this assumes essentially you have metrics to track. I mean, I understand essentially if you can <laughs> say, like, here's a sales team, here's how much money we ship kind of thing, or how many customers I signed up. But when you start getting more creative things about, like, how many new markets do we have versus not, I mean, you're, you're basically testing against a, a negation. That's that's always going to be a tricky one. What ends up happening is these metrics are really great for short-term things, but you end up basically cutting off your long-term options that don't necessarily line up with your initial metrics. And if it's not implemented right, sometimes it can have toxic effects on the culture, you know, where people are just, you know, completely driven on the metrics by, you know, and achieving them by any means necessary. And so sometimes we see ugly behaviors come out as a result of that. So, Tyler, by the way, law firms used to do that. They'll put out these billable hours and, uh, of all the people associates in the firm, send it to everybody else. And I can tell you, it's really scary. Because you're kind of seeing what your fellow competitors for partnerships are doing. And hmm. that is really not a very positive experience. <laughs> so Microsoft says the findings show the importance of flexibility and communication between managers, employees in remote and hybrid work settings. The desire of employees to have both flexibility and connection with others is what Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella calls the great paradox. Okay, so... I'm very curious about those real estate people, or, or if they're putting their, you know, corporate real estate, how much they're putting their thumb on any of these these studies, saying, "By the way, go back to work because there's only so much we can keep these things unoccupied for so long, right? The, the, we, we valued these things way over, way over what they're actually worth. That we don't want to pop that asset bubble. It's going to be really crazy seeing all these, like, okay, get to work, guys, because we need to do stuff for some reason. And by the way, keep playing off those office leases. Don't don't do a don't do an internet-based workforce with things. That'd be terrible for our real estate investments. So my, you know, it's really oh, I'm just just as a quick addendum. So Best Buy is relaunching its health business. You know, so 10, 15 years ago, when when Cal and I were still at Best Buy, you know, we were experimenting in that space. And I saw just today that one of my friends posted for some customer consumer health something something human centered design job, and as this new position, they're building this new team. It's listed as remote so so i think it's really interesting that you know here you have this you know one of the world's largest consumer electronics retailers you know just with with a lot of real estate that's launching this new business um in the remote space okay so the next one up is a perfect segue to my joke about gamified stack ranking because the next articles from wall street journal Headline reads, Bezos' biggest legacy could be Bezoism, using surveillance algorithms and data to supercharge old management systems and squeeze performance out of workers. The e-commerce wow. giant has supercharged systems of management invented a century ago with surveillance algorithms and data leading to a new ism called, they're calling Bezoism. This is like Taylorism on steroids. The for the second gilded age, folks. Yeah, uh, it talks about one team member at Amazon uh, do, doing the po the journalist is using the poster child effect of focusing on one person, which statistically means nothing, but it, you know causes pulls the heartstrings. 
It says, at this very moment, Bezoism is diffusing through the world of work, rewriting, rewriting the source code of is the... Is this the Washington Post, you said? Yes. Okay, I'll, I mean, here. you'd think they could pull some internal connections or something, get some better interview data. <laughs> Let me tweet it out here. And that's tweeted. And it says, at this very moment, Bezoism is diffusing through the world of work, rewriting the source code of the global industrial machine. If it proves as popular and durable as the systems of organization on which it built, from Fordism to the Toyota production system, it could be, along with the e-commerce and space companies he built, Mr. Bezos's most important legacy, depending on how the company's Practicing Bezoism wields its power. The system of technologically supercharged management can be benevolent or sinister or both. Take, for example, Amazon's well-known metric for evaluating worker performance. The rate that that uh, oh, that was in the earlier story about the employee. In Amazon's fulfillment centers, human productivity is measured by overall pick or stow rate calculated for each worker at a robot-fed pick and stow station. Imagine the delight of someone who receives scientific management in the earliest 20th century or Ford or Henry Ford, if they could know in the millisecond how long it took every worker to complete a task every day in every facility they owned. Imagine that. Imagine what er, early time and motion experts Frank and Lillian Gilbreth could have accomplished had they been able to discard their film cameras and replace them with millions of hours of video captured from a digital camera and watch every station at Amazon's fulfillment centers. Imagine how much additional just-in-time efficiency and inventory levels, capital allocation, and automated rendering um, Toyota production systems in post-war Japan would be able to extract from a system that knew the precise moment a worker plucked an item from a shelf and sent it on its way. That Amazon has all this data and can manage its workers, evolve its automated systems and innovation and innovate new robots based on it is one of the reasons it's the most valuable retailer on the earth. You got that right. You figured that part out. A million souls, a million yeah. souls yeah. trapped in hell. Quick question. Do they put the conflict of interest uh, disclaimer on this one or did they just, did they start to stop doing this where they say, you know, that the Washington post. No, they didn't, by... they didn't disclose that. Oh, they're even bothering that anymore. Okay. Well, it's all right. Well, <laughs> oh, so PR department been <laughs> acquired here. Sorry, just just a quick thing uh, on this point. This has been a. Uh, th I'm very familiar with Bezoism. It's often called Bozoism. Um, <laughs> just change one alphabet. But uh, it's only being done, interestingly enough, in their e-commerce in the e-retailing e business. They have they tried to do it in AWS. They got such pushback and such high attrition that it stopped. So it works really well. This completely metric driven in a manufacturing or a very task-driven environment. You bring knowledge into it, you bring innovation into it, it's out of the window. When you when you start talking about how things are done, not just what things need to be done, this pure metric-driven thing is not gonna work. Just, just an insight. I wonder if Amazon could get into the um, uh, pen penitentiary, you know, jail, system and uh, start appearing at courthouses and be like, hey, you know what, uh, Governor Newsom of California, I noticed you're spending a lot of money on prisons. We could help you with that. And we've got this new Amazon facility and we give them a very fantastic, uh, they're much healthier. They have a really nice fitness routine uh, of filling boxes and we're, we're going to wipe that off of your balance sheet. No more 
spending millions on, uh, you know, housing convicts. And that could be a very interesting system there. So <laughs> put them in Taiwan. So the next one is what now? What do we got? That was the Amazon one. The next one is from Decrypt. It says UK's post office, the United Kingdom's post office, signs a deal with decentralized exchange Swarm Markets to let users of its app buy vouchers that can be redeemed for cryptocurrencies. As of next week, Britain's state-owned postal service will help anyone to buy cryptocurrency through its identity verification app. Okay. I guess the state's okay with you buying cryptos as long as they can really track it very thoroughly. The next one's from The Guardian. Uh, says how the FBI and Australian police built and marketed the Anom chat service for criminals, which cost $1,700 for a handset and $1,250 for an annual subscription. Billed as the most secure phone on the planet, Anom became a viral sensation in the underworld. There's just one problem. It was being run by the FBI. And yes, we covered this story, I don't know, two months ago when it was revealed. You, everyone remember this? The Australian and, and FBI, Australian authorities in the FBI had these smartphones that they convinced a lot of bad guys that they were super secret phones. And it turned out they were the least secret phones of all. They were tapped in directly to the authorities. But they were paying a premium for what they thought was a hack-proof phone. And they busted a bunch of bad guys. And Yeah, so... Now the Guardian, two months later, is doing a story on it. So kind of simple as that. The next one is from the Wall Street Journal. A look into crypto-backed loans, which holders have used to buy houses, cars, or even ramp up their investments as federal and state securities oversight grows. Indeed it is. Uh, upstart lenders make it easy to cut out loans backed by cryptocurrency holdings regulators are watching yes they're not only watching they're talking in fact the head of the sec gary gensler had a meeting on friday with a whole bunch of the uh finance community to figure out what they're gonna do about this whole big DeFi space that's growing tremendously and they're very nervous about it because it threatens their traditional business of banking people who are holding crypto are now able to take out loans like you do from a bank and it showed this this article from the wall street journal it says bitcoin to bucks crypto fans borrow to buy homes cars and and more crypto upstart lenders make it easy to take out loans backed by cryptocurrency holdings regulators are watching Crypto enthusiasts uh, are tapping their holdings to buy cars. Uh, they are getting these loans from upstart non-bank lenders and automated blockchain-based platforms. Like banks, these lenders typically take deposits. Unlike banks, their deposits take the form of crypto. The crypto deposits, which earn higher than average interest rates, are used to fund loans to borrowers who pledge crypto as collateral. These loans take many forms. Borrowers can get dollars or other trends, traditional currencies, or stable coins pegged to them, depending on the lender they are working with. The business is growing rapidly. One group of crypto lenders has $25 billion in loans outstanding to individual and institutional clients, up from $1.4 billion a year ago, so a 20x increase from last year. People use crypto, back, and if that continues, at, 
at any rate similar to that, if you're doing 20x growth by next year, what is 20x of 25 billion? Uh, 500 billion. And now you understand if this growth continues for another year, the the banks are going to shit themselves. And what what is uh, Tyler? It's a lot more complicated than just the banks when you're dealing with sure. housing, uh, because because yes. you're dealing with federally backed loans. Yep. And, and Fannie Mae. I mean, and so the, 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 there's a lot of legitimate concerns they have. It's not just like legacy companies that are concerned about um, you know uh, being extinct. There's a, there's a lot of other stuff. Yeah. There's it says here people use crypto backed loans for the same reason they borrow against stock portfolios to reap the benefits of rising prices without diminishing the size of their bets. Celsius Network depositors earn 6.2% interest rate on up to one Bitcoin worth over $46,000. Borrows pay between 0% and 8.95% on Bitcoin backed loans, depending on the loan to value ratio. Some of the money the company uses to fund the loans comes from hedge funds hungry for yield in a low rate world said celsius chief executive alex mishinsky he recommends that customers borrow to pay off their student debt loans and credit cards and to fund their weddings so yeah the u.s is going to have to get real clear real soon about all this yeah but a lot of this if you kind of unnerf it Okay, mm-hmm. these loans at these so-called high interest rates mm-hmm. ultimately ha- have to do with with stable coins and people thinking that the stable coin it could be traded in wherever the coin is could be traded in for for a dollar you know one for one when they find out that a lot of these things like are going to be like Tever where they really don't have the dollars I mean this is what's going to happen and 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 I think I, I sent you something in the back channel um, a few days ago a week ago. That even if you went back like ten years before any anyone even heard of crypto, uh, you had this thing called you know auction rate securities that was actually created by traditional Wall Street, and they they came up with this um, uh, instrument to try to get sell to people. If you want a higher rate than a money market, we we created a way to do it, and it's got perfect and it's got liquidity because we have you know periodic auctions every seven days. And I remember it's like two thousand eight, and I was warning people. I said. You're going to have failed auctions. The minute you have a failed auction, the game is over. And guess what? There were failed auctions. Okay, that was part of the the whole housing market collapse. The only difference is because it wasn't a bunch of crypto companies that were doing it. It was like Citibank. Okay, you had an FDIC insured institution. The government had to do something, and the government ended up bailing out Citibank. But you know what they made the, the, the banks do? They made... The they they made the banks make the investors whole at par, because it was the okay. When, when this thing blows up with the crypto stuff that, that doesn't have that's not really part of the federal system, they're not going to be making people whole. Okay, unlike the people who own the auction rate securities, the government is not going to intercede there. And this it's it's very very similar. Anytime you offer something that has you know in, you know uh, rates of return higher than the so called riskless rate, there's always a risk. And 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 they're telling people people don't understand that there's a risk, and I'm and I'm personally fine with that. I started like started in my career in junk bonds, but you kind of knew what the risk was, okay. And so th- th- there's a lot more here than uh, than just like legacy companies and uh, being scared of new technology. Uh, this has this has rem- has a lot of things that are reminiscent of things that existed before crypto that that blew up in in people's face. In fact, the idea. 
of uh, you know high interest rates where they're paying you in other forms of whatever that is, in this case crypto, is not it's not any different than what's called a payment in kind bond that's been around since Michael Milken, okay, where they they really couldn't afford to pay cash interest, so they would pay you in new bonds. The difference is number one, those are considered legally securities. Okay, there's no question about that. So that's one of the issues with crypto. Okay, two, there are tremendous tax implications because you're supposed to pay income tax even though you didn't receive cash. So if you got a, a new bond, you're supposed to have to value the bond like it was cash and pay tax interest. So it's very punitive. So there's all, again, same issues that you're going to have with this crypto stuff. It's not new. I mean, it's just, but I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for that. So the next one up is uh, from Bloomberg, a New York City-based orchard, orchard, which offers cash to home buyers up front for a new home before selling their old one, raises $100 million at a $1 billion valuation. Denmark-based Corti, a SaaS startup using AI to help health professionals improve patient consultations on phone and video in real time, raises $27 million. And Bloomberg says they have sources that U.S. officials are considering a Financial Stability Oversight Council review into whether Tether and other stablecoins threaten financial stability, to Ken's uh, point here. And Financial Times says number of U.K. unicorns grew 10x in the last decade. Well, we didn't really have much of you, you any much of unicorns going back a decade. So, yeah, that. We have a whole huge bunch of unicorns in the past 10 years. With invested capital growing from a billion a year to 13 billion per year, so a 13x increase in the UK, but some worry Brexit will counteract the change. Yes, and they then they 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 are not stupid to do so. And they've been they've been worrying about that ever since the word Brexit first appeared. Um, although the UK could and likely will, and is in fact starting to make the federal policies more friendly to tech than the EU is. So you could see the opposite also, actually. You could see that the, if the EU continues to make really tight regulations around tech, and the UK does the opposite, because the UK is very excited about trying to make a very hospitable environment to startups, and the EU... Not so much. They're more focused on the end users and making uh, their decisions to benefit users rather than founders. And the UK is focusing on how do we create more unicorns. So, yeah, we'll see how this all plays out. The next one's from Hong Kong Free Press. Out of Hong Kong, it says Google says that it handed over data in response to three requests from the Hong Kong government in the second half of 2020, despite earlier saying that requests must be made through the U.S. Department of Justice. And investigation finds ransomware hackers are publishing sensitive information of school children on the dark web. Over 1,200 U.S. schools had data leaks in 2021. That's a lot of schools. And... Uh, Mark Benioff, uh, the, the boss at Salesforce, will help employees of Salesforce and their families exit Texas if they are worried about access to reproductive health care in the state of Texas. So that covers all. And then lastly, the New York Times one that uh, Chris brought up at the beginning about the internal emails about the data that Facebook provided to researchers studying misinformation since 2019 included only half of its U.S. users, not all as it then claimed. So 
those are your big boring stories. And now we get into what we've all been waiting for, which are the tweets that everyone's tweeting in. And I now have 18 more hours of tweets to get through. But uh, off the top, we have uh, I have my favorite 50 picked out. But before I get into them, anybody have a favorite headline that they've seen lately that they want to jump on? Open mic style, popcorn style? Rather than DMing me, as many of you do? Okay. Yes, Tyler, maybe. Tyler. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure whether this has been discussed uh, at the end of last week. Mm -hmm. Is this new new CO2 absorption factory yeah. in Iceland? Yes, I of course we did. We, technology. we covered it twice. The world's biggest, they're calling it. What, what What's your take on it? It's exciting, honestly. Yeah. If there is some, if this is scalable, yeah, and this can be done, and we can basically uh, get the CO two out of the environment again and back into the ground that was belonged to, rather than just uh, you know relying on some trees or some nature, which will be hit hard anyway through the climate change. So I think that's a man-made solution to mitigate actually um, climate change effect. But again, I would expect that to be, you know, to be having to be done around the world with many of those in order to be really effective. Right. But it's very exciting. Chris, is Chris still with us on stage? Yes. You Mr. Do. What's your take on the big machine, carbon sequestering machines versus kelp or bamboo or hemp or, I mean, rather than make a machine, uh, why not plant fat, very incredibly fast-growing carbon sequestering plants that for example, I mean, multiple techniques can work. The the big one is going to come down to energy, like what's going to power it. Um, because uh, well, well, one of them solar powered. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> um, the one thing I, I would pay really close attention to when you're looking at the um the uh, the the CO two drawdown machines with stuff is one is the factory processes for such things. Like it, you're not going to need like a facility. You're going to need thousands of them, and that's going to take essentially a lot of fabrication and factory potential stuff. And if we're going to hit the the dates that we're talking about for needing to hit like uh, climate targets, um, I would be looking double time at like how much actual resources going into that. If they're just trying to do a well, let's build a prototype and see about see how it works for a little bit, and then we'll try another prototype and see how that works for a little bit. I, I I have trouble I have trouble imagining this as like the the planet is going to melt and essentially the 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 the, the crops will become uninhabitable. I don't I'm not hearing that death marching. You kind of see where you see like a <laughs> on like you know some Hollywood disaster movie or whatever. And so so I, I it's exciting to have one one exist. Um, I would be very interested in the industrial infrastructure required to make lots of them and the energy to power it. Um, I'm a personal, I, you can make that stuff work. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm a little skeptical essentially of the scaling curves to, to, to hit the targets that they're talking about. Um, I'm a personal fan of bio-based solutions, but there's, I mean, there's honestly, the longer you look at this, the longer you study it, the, the number of solutions is quite voluminous. Um, what, what's required is essentially some shared political action. Um, so th that's going to be interesting to see, essentially see how, how they end up, uh, how it ends up working out. But um, yeah, fun stuff. Okay, I'm 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 aligned with Chris too. I mean, I I think this is a great move. The fact that they're interested in this um, carbon sequestration is important, but scaling it is the challenge. You know, um, there there's not a lot of carbon dioxide in the air, so processing the air is the challenge. And um, 
you know, plants and wildlife are extremely effective at processing this. So I don't think it could, should be discounted in the long term. So scale is a good thing to look at whenever you look at these numbers with things. Cause you know, I, I was in a room earlier where they're talking about, well, let's turn kelp into, um, into t-shirts with stuff, which is, you know, it's, it's good to, good to hear. And, you know, if, if you hear what, you know, how people are thinking about this, but scale is the thing to really consider when you've got, you know, like 30 to 40 billion tons of carbon emitted per year, uh, replacing that uh, with, with, if you're doing a scrubber, that means uh, because of the percentage of a really small amount of parts in the air, that means you need to move about a trillion tons of air through a machine or through a set of machines. And that's a lot of stuff. Um, exactly. And, and so, so whenever you hear someone has a solution, someone has a solution, the main thing I would encourage people to do is look at the scale and look at the energy. And that's a quick metric to go whether or not essentially it's worth essentially putting a lot into or going, eh, maybe you want to pivot a little bit. But yeah, I mean, they've got a good shot. And I have a lot of friends that are working on different variations of this technology. So um, or, or, or competing technologies as well with things. So it's, 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 it's a thing. We could do a whole breakout room on that, but I don't want to like dominate conversation here with things. But it's, 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 a, it's a really interesting topic. And so, so as one of those people working on a competing technology, I am supportive of this because we need all uh, as much uh, carbon dioxide removal as we can get as soon as we can get to avoid going over tipping points. Um, I've been focusing on uh, ocean CDR from the ocean using microalgae. The reasons being is that uh, carbonates are more concentrated in the ocean, so you're fighting against less dilution. Um, and also, unlike the air-based capture uh, using some sorbent materials, you're also converting the carbon dioxide into forms that can be uh, more readily used for other things rather than say, okay, we got the carbon dioxide, let's now uh, spend more energy injecting it back into uh, uh, oil wells, for example. Um, I want to build infrastructure and houses and buildings and cities out of captured carbon dioxide because, you know, why not make use of it and replace things that are presently unsustainable with uh, better, higher performance materials? Can I just add a quick um, bit of numbers to this? Um, Chris, I believe, uh, correct me if I get this wrong, it's somewhere about 45, 50 billion tonnes of CO2 that we're putting into the atmosphere at the moment. This one plant um, absorbs 4,000 tonnes a year, so we'll need about 11, 11 and a half million facilities to even just stop the progression that we've currently got in motion, never mind actually start reversing um, all the damage that we've done. Right. So, so at that scale, and, and by the way, when I, when I say like emphasize scale on things, it's at, the, you know, you can make them bigger. Their thing is that it, sometimes it can be intimidating for people, essentially, if you're, if you're not used to the scales of these things. There are solutions to this. Uh, they typically start crossing into like geoengineering territory or things done on very, very large scales beyond what our current political systems are really designed to handle. It's not to say it can't be done. And actually, we've done projects like this historically with things. If you look up something historically, there's like the, the civilian conservation uh, core was like a big part for like when they're trying to reverse the Dust Bowl, um, you know, you know, earlier in essentially the 30s in United States of America, there's similar versions with, you know, where they have like mass things in like Russia or China with things where they've done their own little terraforming kind of projects. And they've been highly successful historically. Um, I, I think that when people are looking for ways of solving things at scale, looking at the historical examples of when ecological uh, events have basically occurred and how we've successfully done that in the past would provide a really good template for things. But yeah, it's a, it's a, fun, it's a fun topic. Okay. No. It is solvable. That's the key thing to remember. Moving on, 
uh, although related articles here, is this one from, uh, no, where to go? It's right here. Ah, from Cheryl from DW.com, Dutch Vela out of Germany. It says the Brazilian, uh, uh, the Brazilian government has promoted deforestation in the Amazon rainforest to, to highs uh, last seen over a decade ago. Environmentalists say that external pressure is needed, particularly from China, who is ostensibly the implication here is that uh, Brazil is doing this deforestation to kind of service a Chinese market. And so China itself needs to curtail its uh, demand, demand for more I, beef. And you know, I feel like if China wasn't basically like involved with this, we wouldn't be hearing about this, to be entirely honest. The headline reads, Who can still save the, the world's green lung? The Brazilian government has... Yeah. So... The, uh, but with regard to ex environmentalists saying that external pressure is needed... I, they mean political pressure, and it says China, but I, I foresee uh, where you're going to start seeing these uh, deforesters start to face physical friction in, in, in their deforestation efforts, and things are going to get really, really weird quite soon. So, the, And here's another, although optimistic one from The Verge, Samsung releases new eco-friendly watch bands made from <laughs> apple peels okay hold on hold on just real quick you want to talk about scale so let's just do a little thought exercise right here imagine every human being on earth has one of these things because it's environmentally sustainable so let's say these things weigh 100 grams let's say you've got let's say 10 billion peels just make a nice round so we've got a billion kilograms that's about 1 million tons that is the maximum of every single human being on earth has one of these apple peel things you're still not going to make a fucking dent in it. <laughs> sort of thing with that, so I'm sorry. Chris, I love the way your mind works. The first thing that came to my mind when Tyler read that was fruit roll-ups. <laughs> I'm sure it's not that. <laughs> like, what? Like, I'm trying to wrap my head around it, but, you know, I think it's innovative. I mean, it's Come cool. On. I mean, don't get me Solid, wrong, the materials you know, are fun. 50 yeah. of them up and down our arms for the climate. <laughs> yes, now you're talking. <laughs> It's innovative until we were in that kelp room and they were saying like at the end there's like four percent kelp product and it's just like a pulverized material that gets <laughs> blended rayon. in to make rayon, you know. I mean well, well it's it's good to get a reference point of like, you know, what people are willing to pay for and how much they feel about it. And, and don't get me wrong, like I don't wanna I wanna just people that are, are working hard on trying to do their part of saying, Hey, us too, we're doing something. I just I think that getting a, a scale check is really helpful so we can sort the solutions of this is about people's emotional feelings about things, and here's the technocratic stuff, and here's essentially the political parts. Because I think when people confuse them, you get a really weird priority mix about things that doesn't really reflect the reality of what we need to accomplish in the time frames we need to. Okay, next one up is from Lucast that uh, we have people are already starting to think about the holidays with Christmas coming up. And the problem is there's no, there's not enough truck drivers, particularly in the UK, which is why McDonald's is, uh, their happy meals are lacking some key items. Like the milkshakes are gone and the, uh, they have limited menus in, in Starbucks where they don't have enough milk and whatnot. So what about Chris, how's Christmas going to work when there's normally a huge uptick in demand for delivery drivers seasonally? 
COVID cancels Christmas. What more headlines do we need for 2021? So what the UK is now doing is relaxing the uh, driving tests. <laughs> the driving tests. Let's, let's just do everybody a favor and start Christmas now. <laughs> there we go. While well, we still can with the, so the, the, the UK. trailers <laughs> like jackknifing on the highway. Relaxing what driving tests. What does that wrong? mean? Like worse drivers on the road? Yes. Yes. Oh, it's a, it's that means people like, like me can go in there now. Truck drivers usually truck drivers usually need to have special licenses. We're doing that in the United States too. We've we we we've we've uh, we've we've relaxed the rules like how many hours they're allowed to drive because just like airline pilots, usually there's a limit on the number of uh, hours consecutive because you don't want them falling asleep at the wheel. And we're starting to relax those to make sure you know so we have, we don't completely break the supply chain. More death and destruction. Fabulous. If yes. Santa's sleigh came early, kids. He's like on the highway going ice everywhere with things. Now, like, we'll have right, the, right. now we'll have the trucks crashing into the Teslas. Yeah, there we uh, go with things. So we're going to have like, the, you know, the zombie apocalypse while we've got in the middle of it and it's going to be great. I think this is a step towards Road Warrior. Hmm. You can just automate them, essentially have people like dodging essentially the automated trucks, essentially. And yeah, I, you know, the Mad Max scenarios are becoming more and more realistic day to day. But, you know, well, we could create other worlds, too. OK, Tyler, there was a Dunkin Donuts in, in Colorado. There was an article the other day that just had to close because they they went down to three workers. They couldn't find any more workers to staff the Dunkin Donuts. So they just closed the shop. Yep. I'm kind of curious, uh, when they, whenever we have one of these articles that basically says that essentially they have to close because they can't hire enough people, do they cover essentially how much they're paying the people? And the other one is, if it was actually because of people not going shopping or not ordering from Dunkin' Donuts, do you think we would hear it because we say no one wants to buy Dunkin' Donuts? Or would they blame it on, on essentially the non-existent employee factor? Because I'm just saying, like, if we... No, if no I understand that, one or the other, what, what are you willing to pay for a donut? I mean, you could always yeah, increase wages, but at some point you have to increase the price. So what are you willing to pay for a donut? Not a whole lot. But this is going to uh, exacerbate the push towards robots that replace the humans anyways. I mean, the technology is there. It's just a question of cost. And then this this is going to push the cost of labor up, which is then going to make the robots more viable. I mean, they've, we've been hearing about this for years about why essentially you can't basically raise the wages with stuff because eventually it'll automate. So it's like this: imagine the labor force is basically calling the bluff and saying, "All right, prove it." So now we're going to watch and see. No, what but happens. Tyler's right. Ultimately, all this stuff gets automated, but you're going to have this period of time that we're in now—that's a transition period. That there's, you know, there's going to be, you know, a, a disconnect, and so there will be less stuff until these, you know, particularly like restaurants, until they actually automate. You know, it's there's going to be a, a break factor. We're in that now, but eventually we're going to get there, and that's how we're going to do it. It's going to be with robots, but you know, you can't do it overnight. So the world, yeah. the a world, trying to quit donut, good for health, better for health. The world, <laughs> the world robot conference is underway in China, and can transition there, Tyler. Yes, I just tweeted it out to the Tech News Twitter account, so you can see some of the really wild robots that they have. At this conference, including a really wild-looking Albert Einstein robot, and it looks exactly like, you know, if you go to a wax museum and see Albert Einstein and the Albert Einstein two sards does robotics. Yeah, the Albert Einstein robot was just one of more than five hundred intelligent machines on display in Beijing's E Town, and an industrial park turned technology mecca located in the Dajing region or district. 
according does to reports, he, it's, it's, it's he spew out Xiisms. Um, <laughs> According to the reports, it's one of the most intelligent androids ever developed and communicates fluently in Mandarin and in English. A remarkably lifelike humanoid makes hand gestures while communicating with visitors. So they made one who looks like the character out of uh, Babylon 5, and they've got a whole ton of robotic dogs now. Like so a... we have like animatronics, and they're saying this is the future? There's, uh, the, by the way, this these black robotic dogs of different sizes look really cool in this article. And as so it says, I, I think yeah, un, uncanny Valley Einstein would be a huge disappointment. Yeah, a really good article though. A lot of it's a fo- it's a lot of photos of and very large photos uh, of the the World Robotic Conference, and it's all kinds of robots. Very cool. So the next one up is from Dr. Fran from The Wired in UK. And it says, how the far right took over Discord and Stream, which are the two most popular platforms for video gamers to conversate while they live stream. It says Discord, DLive, Stream, and Twitch. And Twitch would be the other one. So those are the three big platforms, Discord, Stream, and Twitch, and I guess DLive is another, have become breeding grounds for far-right extremists. Since the online harassment campaign known as Gamergate, in which sections of the gaming world hounded female journalists with rape, bomb, and death threats, it's been presumed that gamer culture has an extremism problem, yet the specifics of this relationship have remained unclear. How wide- basically people with time on their hands. That's, that's really the big thing. <laughs> How, how widespread is the problem? How do extremists use games? And of course, a point of morbid curiosity, what games do extremists play? New research published by the Institute of Strategic Dialogue, a counter-extremism think tank, attempts to answer these questions. Investigating the online strategies of the far right, the ISD has found that several gaming major platforms play host to extremist activities from radically abusive live streams to open support for neo-Nazi terrorists, the ISD investigated four platforms, Stream, Discord, DLive, and Twitch. It analyzed 24 far-right chat servers on Discord, 44 public groups associated with the far-right on Stream, 100 far-right channels on DLive, and 91 channels and 73 videos on Twitch. These spaces were publicly accessible, and the ISD did not look at closed channels such as private chats or groups requiring passwords the authors speculate these would hold likely be home to more coordinated radical groups did they seriously just like leave a, a like a twitch bot in there and then just copy and paste anything that went through a keyword filter and then they're calling this the okay never mind all right i do keep going this is this is there there's there's solving problems and then there's looking for things like yeah. this is kind of a, a gamer version of what you're describing earlier with the Amazon effect of you find a disgruntled worker. Yeah, I mean basically we have had extreme we have had people with issues since the founding of the internet. The question that's never been the question. The question is essentially is how much the platforms essentially uh, empower that or basically have like an amplifying or de-amplifying effect or like a yeah. suppressing effect. The, uh, it used to be we had the, essentially the trolls and we had the, you know, the, 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 the maxim for all the, the form moderators of don't feed the trolls. And then it just basically, you know, it, it keeps it nice and quiet and things are relatively cool. Then we shut all those forms down and said, let's centralize everything under the idea of social media. And I'm sure this will never go bad. And then it's like, what do you know? There's trolls on the internet. Yes. They've been there for forever. 
Um, and the problem is, is that when you basically create systems to shut them down with censorship, that just makes them more creative because then they end up hijacking those systems and then causing everyone else to get run it. The fact mm-hmm. that you have literally, we have almost like a, uh, a, a they, they find other things to fight about, but in fact, that is, is that we have major political parties staking their futures and all of the political, uh, you know, like uh, schedules of what we're going to debate and talk about based upon random form moderator policies is absurd. And the fact that it shows essentially how these basically platforms are weaponized, not as basically for, for, for managing trolls, but how the trolls essentially have hijacked the platforms to basically gain political power. This is not something that could have been unpredicted. It's just, if we wanted to basically go oh, to a world that was back and magical and wonderful when the internet was actually a happy place, uh, we have to bring back more of that community moderation aspect for rather than centralizing it to essentially politically vulnerable groups, uh, not vulnerable groups, politically overly uh, manipulatable groups. We Instead of centralizing that, we should have more decentralized controls and basically a lot smaller communities, but that, that flies in the face of a lot of the business interests that basically have advertiser data that they can centralize in one spot. That's the, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of that ship has sailed in some regards, but it's, it, it's, we didn't arrive here overnight and just, it's sorry, just, just ranting a little bit there because the Gamergate stuff, I, I feel like this is people not understanding structure of the internet or the history of it. And they're trying to basically make it look like something so they can justify more censorship stuff. And that's kind of, get, kind of rubbing the wrong way. This, Chris, is the fact that the, the title of, if I remember correctly, was Tyler, was that the taken over discord. And it's, it's like, it's exactly what you're saying, Chris, is the fact that there's always going to be this kind of mentality on the internet. But even if you go back to some sort of uh, purist version of the internet where communities moderate themselves and whatnot, it's the relative sort of, um, it, it's, it's the relative discordant, uh, excuse the pun, sort of nature of one community versus another community, which is if everything's pure and then you have one place where you've got people complaining about a certain thing, then that relatively is going to be negative compared to a majority of it. So then you'll still have you'll still have news publications going into those places and saying, well, look at this over here, they're taking over this place. It, it, it won't fix the problem. The problem is when you have journalists taking a community that represents a certain, like a large percentage of the next, the upcoming generations, and then just putting it under one bracketing headline of yes. right-wing yeah. extremists have now taken over Discord. Wait, it's also corral the damage a bit. Here's a good. That's a. I like your point, Carl, because you're right. The headline says from Wired uh, how how far right groups have taken over Discord and whatnot, and then on a percentage basis, it's really not that different than r- mainstream society. Like pick any city, you know, in 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 any red state, it's like saying uh, uh, far right extremism has taken over. Um, New Mexico or Tallahassee or, you know, it's just on a percentage basis, it's pretty much the same. But by doing that, by writing articles that say far-right extremism has taken over Tallahassee, well, Tallahassee would sue your ass, you know, or, you know, this is, it's just, they're desperate for clicks. And, yeah, and if you look at the source, because they're Tyler, paid by the, the same companies that basically are causing the problem. <laughs> the, literally, the advertising dollars are flowing from the same groups that are basically in, in, saying you write the most inflammatory headline. You are basically paying the yin to the yang of essentially a lot of this drama. I mean, it, because essentially what ends up happening is, and journalists will do this, they will lump in essentially the basically, you know, the, the kid that basically just learned how to swear online with things. And he's, he's, he's going, hey, look, essentially, I can say something controversial. They're lumping them in with legitimate political stuff that are basically goes against journalist interest. 
And then all of a sudden you have essentially this, you know, nice little fireworks of everything, which causes lots of clicks. So you get more advertising dollars. I mean, I find a lot of the journalists in these, in these ecosystem entirely disingenuous and increasingly our communication systems do not reflect the reality that we inhabit. I remember essentially that, that there used to be a term on the internet. And they still say it occasionally of in real life. The implication being that things that happen on the internet aren't real and people would do well to remember that. Uh, there's this whole documentary by Adam Curtis on hypernormalization, which is, is shocking to watch right now because it's done before essentially a lot of the, 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 the elections of the last two cycles or whatever. But it predicted a lot of what's happened over the last six, eight years in like hook, line and sinker. And what was really impressive about it is the one main argument made was that essentially because essentially things that happen in cyberspace are disconnected from reality, ultimately the political actions taken in there are always going to basically have a tinge of this, something that's not going to be able to actually have the full effect of what happens when you organize uh, in re the real world. And so I think it's really weird watching that slip happen right now as people are basically treating what's happening on in online forums to have more value than where physical goods are moved, where people are physically spending hours of the day, and where essentially the uh, the 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 government has political power in different and communities because those are the things that actually matter in the world. A lot of things of oh no, someone said something and someone got canceled. This is relevant bullshit. But the fact is, we've amplified so much that basically has dominated the discussion. So people are basically unable to process those underlying realities. Okay, next one up is from Dr. Fran from the Times UK. A payment revolution that is killing off credit cards. Could it be buy now, pay later? You better believe that's what they're implying. The former British Airways flight attendant Vivian Hall can afford to pay up front for the clothes that she occasionally buys from the fashion retailer. Uh, buy now, pay later services are everywhere on the high street, and now Apple and Monzo are joining the party. So how safe are they? And so far, uh, Hal has used Klarna more than 20 times, spending an average of £100 a month on clothes, shoes, makeup, and other essentials. That there is no interest or fees is the big thing, she says. It's a combination of that and making it easier to budget. But buy now, pay later started in 2005 with the launch of Klarna in Stockholm, Sweden. The concept has not changed much since then. Retailers hand over between 2% and 6% of the purchase value to the payment company, and customers usually do not pay interest as long as they meet their payment deadlines. It is used by all ages worldwide, with 13, 14 billion pounds worth of purchases made this way in the first three months of the year, a value close to the GDP of Botswana. By 2024, buy now, pay later is likely to account for 1 in 10 of all payments online and 26.4 billion pounds worth of purchases, according to the payment processor WorldPay. It is no underestimate to say that it has changed the way we shop. This week it emerged that the digital bank Monzo is preparing to launch a buy now, pay later product, and it is believed that customers will be able to use it only after undergoing checks to make sure that they can afford what they are buying, something other pay later companies do not do yet. Revolut, the company known for its Currency Card is also planning a buy now, pay later option for its 16 million card customers starting with the trials next year. Barclays, Goldman Sachs, Apple, John Lewis, and Marks and & Spencer are considering deferred payment products with the rest of the banks likely to follow suit. Amazon has set up a partnership with a firm, a buy now, pay later company based in the U.S. and is currently testing a new service for launch soon. There are concerns that not every one realizes they are taking out credit because the payment process is so straightforward and because the lack of credit checks. A review of the sector by the former interim CEO of the Financial Conduct Authority, Chris Woolard, con 
concluded that buy now pay later products should be regulated the treasury agreed the treasury agreed so from next year customers will be able to complain to the ombudsman if anything goes wrong and borrowers will have affordability checks before they use the service banks do not like buy now pay later because it takes away so much credit card spending lloyds which runs the credit card business m m b n a said its credit card balances fell 11% in the year to the end of June. Some in the financial industry are predicting that pay-later services will herald the death of the credit card. Although there remains a lot of skepticism, it, it's proving incredibly popular with consumers, and whether you like it or not, it's here to stay, says James Daly, the managing director of Friar Finance, a ratings and research agency that has worked for Klarna. It's obviously important that the sector be is regulated and the wheels are already in motion for that to happen. But once it is, I think the critics need to stand down. The sums of money involved are generally fairly small and default rates are very low. There is very little evidence that buy now, pay later is a gateway to problematic debt. Obviously, the advertising messages need to be responsible and lenders need to have a right have the right checks to ensure they are not lending to people who struggle, but it is very much in their interest to do so. It's important to remember that these firms are making their money from the retailers who use their services, not from the customers. Klarna does not even charge late fees. So it's obviously or absolutely not in its interest to lend to people who can't pay back their loans. I think it's a useful addition to the payment space. Let's hope the Treasury gets regulation up and running as quickly as possible so that consumers have all the right same protections as other forms of credit. It's more responsible for someone like Monzo to roll aside, Tyler, right? Because Monzo is a bank which is kind of, um, you know, provides a decent money dashboard, allows good functionality, like if this, then that. If Dave spends like too much in Paddy Power this month, I can put a little limitation on. I'm I'm more comfortable with the kind of challenger banks, the kind of Monzo's doing it than the legacy ones, because the legacy ones, there isn't that functionality within any account to kind of, you know, put a, put a kind of stop on like me spending, you know, 200 pounds in clothes whenever I can't really afford it. So I think the so what is more comfortable with the, the better providers with the tool sets, not 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 more comfortable with the legacy bank. So Dave, if I can add on that, that is that is absolutely spot on. So when when Klarna brought this out back in two thousand five, and then Afterpay uh, in Australia started to you know put the afterburners behind this, it was more. I think we spoke about last week, Tyler. It was more from the merchant side. It was more about getting more sales, spending more money. This moving to the issuing side means that to the bank side means that you know it, it becomes everywhere. But what the real the real crux of this is. It will create more debt. It will create more problems if it's not managed. The great thing that the fintechs have done, the Monzos, the Revolut, the, the Chimes, the great things that they've done for banking is that they've brought money management up to the top level to make it easier for people. So people can see this as money management rather than instant credit, then that will be a benefit to everybody. But if this becomes hidden behind purchases, then it becomes debt. Okay. Thank you for that, Aaron. The next one is from Heyman, and the headline reads, AI can now detect a deep fake face. Ooh, we could play Tech News Jeopardy. How can AIs detect a deep fake? What, what do they notice? By in, making it better. No, in a, in a, AIs are able to tell if a face is a deep face. I'm sorry, an AI is able, can now detect a deep fake 
face because of some aspect of the face. I have a hold on, I have hold a, on, actually hold on. a very important response to this one. We'll play Jeopardy Let, first though. Okay, let's play Jeopardy. Anyone anyone can jump in here. Porcelain skin. Eyes. No. <laughs> Messy? Uh, um disgenuous reaction? Huh? No wrinkles. A disgenuous, uh, a disgenuous uh, f a facial expression. That's a great guess. Skin pores, skin pores. Not skin. Not wrinkles. Who? Who's... Is that at every? Is that at every angle? Something's always perfect. Who said yes. eyes? I did. I think a few people did. Yeah. So Vinay gets the point. So the the headline says AIs can detect a deep fake face because its pupils have jagged edges. <laughs> okay. Oh my God. All right. It's we need a quick little time. public education thing here. This will take about 30, 60 seconds. I'm going to see if I can condense this. Short version is that general adversarial networks, how they work, there's two parts there's the generator and the discriminator. The reason why this is important is that one part of the network comes up with a bunch of fake faces. The other half of the network, the neural network, basically tries to basically uh, generate to it, and the other one tries to discriminate. And the reason why this is important is because something that is, makes better faces will basically be on one part, but the part that's able to detect them makes for the, the thing being able to make better faces because it's able to be detected it's like it's lying to itself. Now here's why this is important. Whenever you see some network group or some, some sort of group come out and say, we have a better way of detecting deep fakes. That's wonderful. Feed that into the network, and now we'll be able to fix that so it won't have that be an issue anymore. It's a core part of how the technology works. Anytime someone says we have something that can detect deep fakes, that's just one more thing to feed into the deep fake generator, and it'll make it more undetectable in the future. So it's an arms race. And the thing is, the, the, the crazy part about this is the more that you feed it for being able to uh, try to basically differentiate, the more skillful it becomes. So you're going to see these headlines a lot, and it's important to know the difference. And the more you cover it, the the more you're hel helping the the deep fakes. It's like a Roku's Roku's basilisk type kind of situation, which is hilarious. So your Chris is saying that um, you actually do have human bias when you are really you know whatever input you give it to in the back you know in the back channel. So you still have that human bias, right? If you say this doesn't look as good as the other one or the jagged thing, congratulations, you're helping feed it so it's going to be better on the next round. Okay. The so, jagged eyes on this one, well, the next the next version is just going to be that much better. The next one up here is from BB, who says that Israel considers a fourth COVID shot, the double booster. While most countries are still trying to finish inoculating their populations for the first time, Israel's already preparing for a second round of booster doses. Why something are they, they not admitting that, that the vaccine is not working? Well, there's also something that, that so two parts, it's something that Israel can do that other countries can't just because they have universal conscription. Um, and I'm pretty sure they have biodefense as a part of that is essentially they literally have essentially like health records for the entire population, but also in a military, you're taking this as a part of being a part of the military. Now, even after you've left... Um, there's still that cultural type kind of aspect, which is a little different. They're able to move more in synchronicity for this specific part. The other one to, to throw out there is the Delta studies that causes everyone to like freak out. Um, the the uh, Israel, I think, was one of the first to publish on that and actually start moving internally for how they're going to respond to Delta 
they were a good month or two ahead of everyone else and kind of giving out warnings about that. I mean, India had theirs hit, but I think Israel had like the study groups. So yeah, they're, they're already on the oh crap mode. But I think the virus will get stronger and stronger because of this. Well, if, if you roll it out in, in suboptimal ways, then yeah. But um, th- there's something up with, with uh, what's going on with Pfizer in Israel. It does not seem to be going on in other places. Interesting. Okay, we're ready for more here. So we've got uh, faith, according to CNBC, America's big uh, finance TV channel, uh, Facebook to buy $100 million worth of unpaid invoices from 30,000 small businesses owned by women and minorities. Right? Sounds great. Being that it's Facebook, of course, we have to look at this with a little extra scrutiny. Is it possible there's some juicy data, as Carl, who tweeted this in, points out, the juicy, juicy data of all of these 30,000 businesses and their invoices and who they, who those invoices are to and from and for how much? Oh. A friend could... of mine that wanted to launch a business to do exactly this actually a while back with things. And, and he would he, he, he say, hey, hey, how would you build this kind of thing? I outlined a whole thing of what you could do with the data sets with that. So it was, this is interesting. And apparently Facebook so, realized the same thing and they're going into it. Though targeting minority groups, uh, that's a, that's an interesting angle to it. They can probably do some interesting things there. So Facebook is a factoring company, but using the data instead of... Factoring, that's what it's called, yeah. So the next one's from Cal Patel, and it's, although he doesn't know it, the photo in the article, I'm going to, it's also from CNBC, the headline reads, and there's a, I'm going to talk about the photo in the, in the tweet in a second. The headline reads, Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index drops as Chinese tech shares fall. Uh, yet again, uh, because of the big headline that many people are reporting, the Financial Times reported that Beijing wants to break up Alibaba's ant group Alipay app. Alipay is what, a ubiquitous uh, app. A billion people use Alipay to pay for things in China. And now Beijing has announced they want to break up Alipay and force the creation of a separate loans app. And so the state is basically taking over Alipay, which is one of the most popular apps in all of China, most popular fintech apps in, in all of China. And that's causing the uh, Hong Kong's index to drop yet again due to more the, the tech crackdown and the stock market crackdown continues in China. Now, the photo that the journalist used from CNBC <clears throat> is of the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. And it's bittersweet for me because it's precisely the main entrance to the Hong Kong Stock Exchange where I host my event every month at the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. You can literally see the front doors of where I would stand and greet all of the guests coming into my event in Hong Kong. And it's I'm missing it terribly. And uh, But thank you, Cal, for sending that one in. So the next one from Faraz from Wired that the White House denies that the CIA teleported Obama to Mars. Some of the craziest... It says, forget Kenya, never mind the secret uh, madrasas, the sinister shocking truth about Barack Obama's past lies, not in East Africa, but in outer space. 
What is this How all about? I get a response out of this. Is someone trying to screw with someone else on this one? Like, <clears throat> this is like one of those, like, all right, we'll send a message essentially to prove that I'm actually who I say it is. So things. We'll send a message from the official CIA Twitter account. As a young man in the 1980s, Obama was part of a secret CIA project to explore Mars. That's the assertion, at least, of a pair of self-proclaimed time travelers who swear they traverse time and space at the government's behest. When's the TV show pilot coming out? I want to see the Netflix special. Wired.com. And the future president teleported there along with future head of DARPA. That's the assertions of a pair of self-proclaimed time-traveling, universe-exploring government agents. Andrew Basaggio and William Stillings insist that they once served as chrononauts at DARPA's behest, traversing the boundaries of time and space. They swear a young Barack Obama was one of them. Perhaps this all sounds fantastically absurd and more than a little nuts. We couldn't agree more. That's one of the reasons we love conspiracy theories. The more awesomely insane, the better each week. During 2012, when the Mayans tell us to expect the apocalypse, Danger Room will peel back a new layer of crazy to expose those also cleverly hidden um, uh, machinations powering the doomed plane of existence. Welcome back to the Tinfoil Tuesday. Uh, according to I, the, I thought Obama was was on the moon with the clones of Elvis that the CIA is farming. So. They say that this whole con- controversy ex- explains the the birth certificate issues and uh, oh, those silly CIA people. It's not yeah. like they're basically doing drug running, essentially to sponsor, essentially some. That would be crazy if he's. If yeah, that were, would be. Insane. Maybe he's selling it's cocaine to the Martians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you know, was it Gary Webb? I think it was with things. It's like it's a good thing that whenever there's a silly conspiracy with CIA, but is involved with that's always silly. Take me to your dealer. the next one's from cal patel from cnbc china has too many electric vehicle companies the minister says (laughs) beijing's promotion of greener vehicles to cut pollution has prompted electric car makers such as neo xpeng and byd to expand manufacturing capacity in china and he's going to get consolidated yeah it's basically it's like this is when you start basically looking at the, the the lead groups to cash out and everyone else is like you're gonna get your acquisition offer you cannot refuse the buyout offer it's going to be backed by china state bank and uh you're you'll retire very nice and happy but you can't say no because they need to have one company have 80 percent of the market and we're about to find out who went who's the lucky winner that gets to join central party <laughs> The Faraz sends it. My bet is the bus company. It's going to be one of the bus companies because they achieve seventy percent electrification. I bet it's going to be one of the bus people that's going to basically come out winning on this one. The Walgreens and Village MD expand in Arizona with twenty-two full-service primary care clinics in the Phoenix area this year. Walgreens and Village MD. So Village MD is going to piggyback into the brick and mortar of Walgreens. And th- this is a really interesting concept where you have tech companies that are made in the clouds and then you have brick and mortars who are built on the ground and eventually the, the cloud companies get very powerful. They have all the data. They start wanting to be on the ground. They could build their own brick and mortar ground or they could murder. They could partner with these brick and mortar companies on the ground that are basically dying. But they could, if they get very savvy, 
they can start partnering with these cloud companies. Best Buy could do the same. Best Buy could partner with all kinds of interesting cloud companies. Or they can murder a bunch of smaller ones and then just take all their real estate space. <laughs> yeah, or you wait for the brick and mortars to die and then just take over their the building. Um, I, I'm not going to spend too much on this with things, but there is a, a, a conspiracy theory floating around, uh, uh, like with the other thing or whatever, that apparently... Uh, they're saying, well, Amazon is essentially the whenever they've taken over a company that they've basically done like this crazy stock market type of magic. And the GameStop thing is just unearthing this large conspiracy thing. By the way, buy more now so we don't lose our shirts on this. Uh, what's funny about it, the conspiracy on this one is because Amazon ha- is so close to all this antitrust kind of thing and being in every market. It makes it very convenient whenever you need to spin up a conspiracy theory about Amazon did something when they, before they moved into a, a buying out something because there's, there's basically – They've, they're connected to so many parts of the economy right now. You can't basically, you know, swing a, swing a cat without <laughs> running into something these days. But uh, yeah, there's 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 all sorts of magic in there. So, hey, Dollar, I got a question: Are Seven Elevens dying in in Thailand? Not at all. That's okay. This might, I'm going somewhere with this. They're everywhere. There, there was a there. there okay. actually, I'm going somewhere with this. So, Walgreens, keep going. Walgreens is nothing more than a Seven Eleven with a pharmacy. I mean, mm-hmm. If you look at what products they sell, that's pretty yeah. much what they are. So I mm-hmm. don't know if they're going anywhere. Mm-hmm. There, there is a fascinating Wikipedia page on list of uh, list of uh, franchises with most number of locations worldwide, and uh, Subway's on there. Uh, the Walgreens is on there uh, with CVS Boots. Uh, I mean, uh, Walgreens uh, Lines Boots. Um, there's also uh, uh, the, the, there's CVS. also a CVS with things. There's Western Union, but Seven Eleven, I think, is the you know based out of Japan. I think is the the, the, the most number of right, right there with Western Union, like the most number. No, of no I agree, but I'm just saying Walgreens is not that different than Seven Eleven. Other than as a pharmacy, if you look at the products that it sells, you know, basically convenience products, it's pretty much a Seven Eleven. Right. Well, one of the fun things is that when you're looking at expanding like a physical footprint and you start doing fun things like we were looking at for th- things like could we put a little, little Wi-Fi router and serve data to essentially like 10 miles radius and every everything in an area. So it's like, well, who would we sign a deal with to basically get the largest physical footprint in the shortest period of time? And, you know, those sorts of data sets are really fun to crunch numbers on. But the, the maps are look really pretty when you basically plot all those different franchises on a map and they start going, holy frack, there are a lot of subways in the world. <laughs> Okay. Uh, so somebody found my interview with Mark Suster. Thank you, Alex. I'm retweeting that one out now. And here we go. Um, Ken, there's, uh, I'd like your comment on this headline from Vinay that says, DeFi chain to offer tokenized stock versions of Apple, Tesla, and Amazon. The tokenized stocks will be collateralized by cryptocurrencies, which means traders won't have to go through an intermediary such as a broker. Well, okay, if it's an actual stock that represents ownership, I don't understand that because all, most stock these days are not in physical stock certificates. They're, they're already digital at the, D, at the um, DTC. So I don't know how you do that legally. I think that's almost impossible without like, some changes in laws. If you told me they're just going to make an NFT that looks, you know, of what a stock certificate looks like, that's a whole different issue. <laughs> you know, a JPEG of the stock certificate. Yeah. Great. <laughs> that's a brilliant idea, by the way. What, probably yeah. get pretty far on it, honestly, in the current investment climate for what we're going to call. What about a house? What if I, what if, what if, what if I make an NFT of just a house? You buy this image of this house, 
it's the millennial version. It's yeah. like it's... early. This is early eBay. Remember, you'd buy stuff, and it's like, hey, I got a good deal on an uh, an iPad, and it's just the box, the picture of the iPad. <laughs> oh yeah, the boxes with things. <laughs> so the next one up is from Nalormi from DW.com that the UK to launch a trial of revolutionary new cancer test. The gallery blood test can determine whether a patient has cancer before symptoms show up. Health experts hope for a game changer in early cancer detection. Well, that would be great. Let's hope Perse- it works. Professor Asif's down there. Maybe he has some info on that. Okay. And speaking of technologies that we pray to God work, Gareth sends in this one, uh, Fusion Energy Nears Reality, thanks to Ultra Powerful Magnet. Please, please, cool. sweet Jesus, let that happen. Okay, if we need fusion yesterday, just look up Project Pacer. We knew how to do this since the 60s. Just drop a nuke underground. It's not that hard. The, all, the one we're trying to figure out how to do is the politically acceptable above-ground version. But, uh, yeah, if we need energy quick. We, we, we've already got pathways for that. So the the next one here is... But that is, magnet is really freaking sweet, by the way. Like, it's actually really freaking cool. You know, here's one from Nilormi from South China Morning Post. It says, that, and I'm just reading the headline here, Paranoid U.S. is recruiting science talent for China. Washington's China Initiative, a spy-catching campaign, probably convinces or helps retain more ethnic Chinese scientists to stay or work in China than any recruitment drive from Beijing. Uh, a renowned ex- uh, Somebody named Hu Anming, a renowned expert in nanotechnology, had all charges against him dropped last week after a U.S. federal judge ruled no reasonable jury could convict him on the evidence presented. In July, U.S. prosecutors were forced to dismiss cases against five other Chinese scientists accused of visa fraud. All the cases were prosecuted under the so-called China Initiative, Washington's campaign to identify and root out suspected Chinese spies in U.S. academia. Between 2018 and last year, FBI Director Christopher Wray revealed there had been more than 2,000 investigations. Hu Anming was accused of hiding his ties to the Beijing University of Technology when applying to work on projects at the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, known as NASA. But in the course of not one but two trials, it was revealed that his former employee, the University of Tallahassee, or sorry, the University of Tennessee, knew about his China work all along. And his failure to disclose his link to the Chinese University to NASA had more to do with confusion than deliberate than de- deliberation because the rules of disclosure were so unclear that even NASA administrators were sometimes confused by them. Apparently, many U.S. academics were rather cavalier about such disclosure, while administrators were often lax in monitoring them. The FBI case against who was done out of spite. The first trial heard that FBI agents tried but failed to recruit who to spy for them in China. They then Some quick context on numbers. This is from 2010 with things, but it's 18,000 uh, 18, uh, uh, PhDs granted essentially per year of science stuff, uh, 30,000 total, but 18,000 to citizens. So if, if you know if, if that if you've got 12,000 or so overseas, saying that they investigated 2,000 of them, that's actually like one fifth or so. That's a pretty substantial quantity of people essentially just just for going through these investigations with things. So whatever process they have, there's a lot of people that went through it proportionally. So they then, the FBI then told his university 
employer that he was a Chinese military spy, despite having no evidence. Well, they they may have evidence, but they can't reveal it with you. That's part of being the FBI, by the way. So kind of a problem there. They ended up having to prosecute him on non-disclosure and trying to defraud NASA. So he was re- they were claiming he was violated his non-disclosure agreement. The other five scientists were accused of hiding or falsifying information about their affiliation with the People's Liberation Army on their visa applications. They were among a larger group of Chinese researchers prosecuted under China Initiative, which has been accused of racial profiling without catching any real spies. However, even an internal FBI memo admitted that the U.S. visa application potentially lacks clarity regarding the disclosure of Chinese military affiliation. Washington never learns, according to South China Morning Post. <laughs> China just shot our spies, by the way, like in comparison with things. We put our we, we send warning flags with trials and stuff like that, just, just as a comparison there. During the anti-communist witch hunts of the McCarthy era, jet propulsion expert was suspected. So South China Morning Post doesn't like what the U.S. is doing with Chinese academics uh, who the FBI says are spies, but doesn't reveal their evidence. Yeah, and I used to run um, a Confucius Institute um, at one of the universities that I administered I, um, when I was back in the U.S., and it was it was highly political. So the, the Confucius Institute is run by the Hanban, you know, out of China, and they have thousands of these um, uh, kind of partnerships set up globally and they're they're structured to be uh, a way to exchange culture and language but so it's not it's not the same as recruiting a faculty member in let's say the school of engineering but there are you know research exchanges that take place and this was in the what 2015 2016 17 18 and and you know so during that time frame there was a lot of pressure to ensure that you know, the language exchange programs were solely based on language exchange. Um, the other piece of it is something that I learned this morning when I was meeting with one of my Chinese advisees, a doctoral student, and um, he has a, an, an education exchange company. He's based in Thailand, but he's been in China for about the past eight months. And he shared with me that Chinese students are not allowed, I have to look into this, not allowed to go to the U.S. to study engineering and science anymore. So the government has taken a more proactive stance. The Chinese government has taken a more proactive stance in, um, you know, in granting um, students permission to study abroad in the U.S. in science and engineering disciplines, which I, I found to be when, interesting. When did the shift happen? Shocking. When did the so, shift happen? I just learned about this this morning. Oh my, that's actually quite an escalation. Now, thank you for that. So the next one is from CNBC. Goldman Sachs is more bullish on tech. Here are its top stocks for the fall. Is it paywalled or not? Let's see. Hold on. Tyler, it might be amazing if, if Goldman Sachs list is all Chinese companies. Chinese <laughs> it's I don't know why there's something wrong with this article. It's not fully loading, but I'll, I just tweeted it out for those who want to see it. And then the next one is 
Um, this one from Cheryl from the New York Times. Why are so many nursing home residents in the U.S. being diagnosed with schizophrenia? I'm tweeting that out. Schizophrenia is being diagnosed in nursing home residents at an alarming rate. And you can see the chart. It, although the, I think what's happening is, is they're just... Uh, cases of delusions are going down, but schizophrenia is going up. So maybe they cancel each other out. And it was can, just that. Can we go over this in the morning? But I, I know we covered it a bit over the weekend. Danish said that, if I remember correctly, they're pre they're prescribing a lot of this anti-schizophrenic or these psych uh, anti-psychotics essentially to help keep the patients down because they don't want to deal with servicing them they want to keep mm -hmm. them compliant and i think that it's leading to higher uh rates of diagnosis as a result i yeah. don't know it says yeah, it also sorry it also has to do with the way that the way that they're getting the reimbursement codes as well as yeah. the way that they're being paid so yeah i'd love to go over this in the morning because dinesh definitely had um, okay. some very strong feelings about it we'll bring it back it says phony diagnoses hide high rates of drugging at nursing homes at least 21 percent of nursing home residents are on antipsychotic drugs a times investigation found um so, so it's likely what we're saying and we'll dive deeper into this one when we meet again in Six hours? Yes, in six hours. But a few more before we go. Cami has one about uh, artificial intelligence detects risks of genetic syndromes in children. Children's National Hospital's AI enables rapid genetic screening. A comment from Cami on this one? Just tweeting that out. Just tweeted out. Maybe not. Okay. Next one from Cheryl, Singapore pivots to living with COVID, refrains from tightening measures uh, and social distancing. Uh, Singapore has refrained from tightening social distancing measures, even as the highly infectious Delta variant has driven COVID-19 cases up sharply while the country shifts to a long-term strategy of living with the coronavirus. Health minister said Singapore wants to limit deaths and avoid overwhelming its hospitals, so it's not opening up the economy further for now. And Dr. Fran sends in one about physicists have a Kickstarter campaign to test whether we are living in a simulation. And if we are in a hyper-realistic simulation, like the Matrix, would it be possible to find out? And that's what the Kickstarter campaign's all about. You know what, guys? I'm just going to say it right now. If this is a simulation, at least they pick some cool people to hang out in the simulation. <laughs> and we're going to find about it on Kickstarter. By the way, I just want to just plug this. It's hilarious. The, 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 the best Kickstarter campaign I think I've seen to date is the Antimatter Factory that they're going to raise funds for on Kickstarter. They're doing it for like a feasibility study, but it was still just this, you know, if you ever want to like, you know, create like, you know, breakthrough physics, you know, what's 20,000 bucks, right? You know, it's insane so, these days. It we'll says. If, we basically, if reality is based a certain way, we've got antimatter. You never know what you're going to find on Kickstarter. And you might get it. Good board, board game t-shirts out there with some cool swag. The, the Death Star uh, uh, GoFundMe beats that, I think. <laughs> so it says in the article here that, oh, shoot, I want to save that New York Times article. It says, uh, of course, the simulation could be clever enough to know that it knows of intent and will find trick 
trickier ways of concealing this from you. So should this not work, the team propose a series of ever more complex ways that you could test the system if it exists. They even started a Kickstarter in order to fund the tests, which has raised so far $236,000. Of course, if we find out that we're not living in a simulation, that has implications too. Going back to Bostrom's proposal, it would mean that we are looking at option one or two. We either don't make it as a species or become something virtually unimaginable, both of which might be preferable to finding out that we are in a simulation. If that happened, it could ruin whatever they were testing by running the simulation in the first place. Technologists rolling so, in religion, news at 11. So number number one, the simulation hypothesis is metaphysics masquerading as math. And number two, I think these guys have found their full employment plan for life. <laughs> <laughs> no, dude, reality isn't what you think it is. Pay me more and find out more, you know, the next Kickstarter round, you know? And the next one's from TechCrunch is India's buy now, pay later set to disrupt business to business. A specific vertical of buy now, pay later products is gaining traction. One targeted towards small and medium businesses, also known as SME, BNPL, buy now, pay later for businesses. That Now it's going to get interesting. It's no longer just for consumers. And then here's the one Ken mentioned, a Dunkin' Donuts can, can coffee shop. one thing about the business yeah. side? Pretty much everything on the business side is buy now, pay later, because they bill you net 30, net 60, net 90, you know, unless you have to pay cash. Yeah. A, a drunken coffee shop, uh, a Dunkin' Donuts coffee shop is temporarily closed after a number of its staff fell from 15 to 3 and couldn't find anyone to replace them. And then the next one is a government of India wants Tesla to first start production in India before any tax concessions can be considered. Th that India is a clever, clever negotiator. They, they sure know yeah, that's how. a nice way get here and then we'll think about it. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. Well, no, what it is is Tesla wants to import the cars. India wants them to make the cars on the ground. And that's why there's such a high import tax is to incentivize them to consider building the factory there in the first place. And But once you start building them, then they lose all incentive to want to uh, lower the import tax. So... This game goes all the way back to Japan going, hey, wait, we can export cars to America. They'll love us for this. Oh, crap, they're terrified of us. And aren't li Okay, we'll, we'll voluntary do a voluntary export quota limiter type kind of thing. And thus was born the era of car companies playing lots of fun shenanigans with globalization. So now the Times of India has picked up this story about big tech made billions during the war on terror. And now that, that narrative has now spread to popular... Publishers. They're just in trying to tie it in with the September 11th. The more interesting is the tech companies made billions with the, essentially the, 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 the COVID response type kind of thing. And then the thing is, well, should they have? And it's like, well, yeah, probably. But then it's like, well, you know, that would be a much more interesting discussion. But sure, let's try to insert some terror stuff and then we'll be topical about it for a week or two and then we'll forget about it along with everything else. It's, 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 it's crazy. So we actually, if we actually care about these things, we should actually do some policy about it. But they're just going to tie it in with like the topical stuff that's clickbait. The Chinese EV maker Xpeng uh, introduces its first rideable robot unicorn for kids. It's like a horse <laughs> with a horn. The robotic pony not only can be ridden just like a real one, but it's even able to interact in 
in, in a clever way. And engineers to develop autonomous robot swarms to mine lunar resources. Engineer, uh, they received NASA funding for a new project to advance space mining methods that use autonomous robot swarms. And you can What's now... What's the name of the company? Uh, let's, I just tweeted it to the Tech News Twitter account. T-N-A-T-W. The next one says, Smartphones are on their way out and augmented reality is coming to replace them. The age of smartphones could be over sooner than you think. While it might not feel like people have become less interested in cell phones, uh, yeah, this is partly true. We're going into a new era. Um, we might skip AR. Like it's kind of shaping up. It was going to be like the dominant thing for everything. It's might be end up being more of an accessory type kind of world where you're just seeing like data endpoints everywhere, and that's just one of like a handful of collection of accessories. I don't know. It's, it's weird. It's it's not as clean cut as it used to be with things because they've been so slow at rolling out the glasses and everything. It looks like it's going to fragment before it emerges. Okay, here we go. Tomoko sends in this one from Nikkei Japan that Family Mart, which is like the 7-Elevens in Japan, prepare 1,000 unmanned stores in Japan. Although Japanese people prefer face-to-face interaction, it's coming since already... S- Already senior are working. Oh, Japanese needs to employ seniors to keep the stores open. And they're going to be gone before long. So we got to automate these stores anyways. <laughs> Doesn't Japan have one of the highest concentration of like vending machines per capita? In the oh, world? by like, far. Like by extreme, by 10x. Yeah. Like, cultural things for this. Yes. Well, what it is is... With all those police boxes everywhere. Everything's because, you know, America, so if someone goes with a baseball bat with yeah. it, it's like, you know... Yes. Yeah, having a police station on every street corner enables other technologies like vending machines covering all the streets. So the CV... Well, speaking of that, perfect segue, Chris. The next one from the Wall Street Journal from Nita, or Netta, who joins us here. That CVS, the Home Depot, Ultra, and Target all have something in common. They're struggling to keep up with organized crime rings stealing from their stores in bulk and selling the goods online, often on Amazon. And they're paying for PR right now because it, you have seen about five different headlines of similar topics in basically organic media, like in Reddit and essentially some Instagram stories with things. It's amazing how this becomes a cultural issue all about the same time. Remember, I was saying that this was just anyone that thought you could do cashierless commerce in the United States was just fooling themselves. Well, now we have the moms. We have facial recognition and we can basically just sick them. Like, you know, if you harass someone on a beach, that's one thing. If you essentially, like, you know, you call from someone in a store, and if you just walk away with something, the mob will do the work for you now. Yeah, but I was wondering, I, when I read that, I was actually wondering, how are these people carrying this stuff out? I mean, do people just not care? Are they paying it's so it's, it's are they, the California they, law. So it's the laws. I have to. I, it, in California, if you steal less than $1,200, they can't do a thing about it. So the they keep a running count of what they're stealing, and they get to eleven hundred dollars, they walk out, and no one can do anything about it. I was uh, thinking actually, maybe that's... I, w- I was thinking maybe they're doing something on the back end where they're you know paying off people for delivery trucks to maybe pull in something and take out something. No, they're using shopping carts. Yeah, they just go through the front door with stuff. It's it's pretty I mean, brazen. In so, the article, so in the article, there's this you know they made an example of this person who walked away. In a garbage bag, like a thousand dollars worth of allergy pills, which I can use right now, 
a thousand pills of allergy it, pills. Yeah, that's what, and they said specifically a thousand because it's less than twelve hundred. Because the second you go over twelve hundred, they can arrest you. But isn't but that thing is, city by city or county by county? It was the Prop Fifty, whatever that we had. Oh, okay. So, so the thing is, they did just, uh, uh, I don't know whether they proposed or passed a law that if it is linked to, to gang act, or excuse me, or if it's an organized effort, then the Rico $1,200 limit doesn't apply. Because ah, it's a Rico so crime. Is, oh, so the reason we're hearing about it now is they're basically doing a concerted push to try to say, oh, they're all organized. Every single instance of this is organized, so we can finally respond to the thing. This is the merchants basically well, using the public to say, come on, the fences. A lot the of the people that are, are also working there are getting paid so little that, you know, they're not going to put themselves on the line. They're not going to, you know, a lot of times I can guarantee you they're just seeing it and saying, screw it, you know, it's none of my business, you know. Um, uh, I mean, well, they've got metrics to basically go in. Is there a metric for how many shoplifters you stopped, essentially? If it's not showing up in your metric for things, why would you bust your own ass for it kind of thing? They've got they've already got a just-in-time thing optimized to the hell and back. And exactly. you don't, here's, just throwing one more thing out. One of the, the key parts about all the Six Sigma magic and everything, one of the, one of the, the, the sins was basically having warehousing space. Yeah, dig, take down your inventory. Do you, everything essentially, don't have inventory, don't have inventory. One of the side benefits of having inventory, doesn't matter if it was 10, 20% of your, your potential revenues you had as a thing or, or less. The fact of when you have inventory, one of the things you can do when you've got on-site inventory is you also have the ability to have better security control of your internal supply chain at every endpoint. So shit like this just doesn't happen because essentially you can control the, the, uh, where everything co- goes in and out of. But when they basically removed all of that and essentially the inventory is whatever is on the shelf and you have the ordering system tied in with that, this is one of the side effects of that is you're basically, you have almost no standoff distance for any kind of security thing. So it's just basically you watch the product, watch out the door. There. Do you is remember service merchandise, guys... Tyler? I'm sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. Ladies first. No, no, I was just curious. Is there any kind of uh, like insurance policies or anything for theft uh, that maybe they're also not handling as much as they can or, you know, as much as they could, depending on, you know, what kind of uh, um, insurances they're getting back? I think Cal would probably know more about that. Like, I'm well, sure there's a Most of these large companies are self-insured, right? Number one. And even if they had a commercial insurance policy, there would be a large deductible. So I don't think it's about the insurance. It's, it's, and, it's, and it's really a California issue, as, as Chris said, I think, even though it's, it's – Chris, I think it's Prop 47, not Prop 50. But, yeah. yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's, a, it's a California issue. And also, it's even worse, like in Los Angeles, where the newly elected DA – doesn't want to even prosecute uh, anything that's kind of considered like a minor, you know, a minor crime. I mean, technically now these things are misdemeanors. They could actually, they could arrest them, but they're not going to bother on a misdemeanor. Random points target essentially corporation has a fusion center, literally counterterrorism, everything, because essentially they, they tie all security cameras and say, we'll be the test bed for all your craziness because we basically have invested fortunes in this. So you're ever going to basically have someone essentially rob the store with things. Target is one of the places you don't want to do it. Another crime factor, if you actually look at the amount of essentially thefts that occur uh, by essentially different segments of society, et cetera, uh, shoplifting is actually relatively low on that list. Essentially shrinkage for other reasons with things is actually uh, one factor, but the big one is actually just um, actually the other side of wage theft with things. Essentially employers stealing from the employees essentially with not paying them for for wages and stuff. Another factor is essentially back end for, for essentially on the, 
uh, of, you know, white collar crime type kinds of aspects that when you actually look at the larger number, uh, oh, and then tie in essentially some of the other crap essentially with like, you know, like um, uh, asset forfeiture and things like that. When you actually look at the total number of thefts that happen in society, uh, shoplifting is actually relatively low on the list, but it's one that goes back historically a lot farther. So I think that you can elicit some, some feelings about it, but it's asking whenever essentially the merchants get, get unhappy about it well enough to basically organize a PR campaign about it and watch essentially how people respond. Um, but yeah, fun, fun times. Okay, so President uh, Biden and uh, President Xi had a phone call on Friday, and it was remarkably no real surprises. It's uh, Xi says basically whether China or the U.S. can handle their relations well is of great concern to the future and fate of the world. It's a question of the century uh, that the two countries must answer. Mr. Biden's message to Xi was that both sides need to ensure that competition does not veer into conflict. Both sides had a broad strategic discussion in which they discussed areas where our interests converge and areas where our interests, values, and perspectives diverge. The discussion, this discussion, as President Biden made clear, was part of the United States' ongoing effort to responsibly manage the competition between the U.S. and the PRC said, said the statement. Okay, there's kind of uh, not, kind of nothing much to uh, jump on there. Um, the next one up is actually a video from Gabby uh, from China of a new parking technology that moves parked cars around a parked car garage to make it far more efficient and this is truly mind-blowing you have to see this it slides underneath the car then lifts the car off the ground then moves the car wherever it want to moves it inside the parking garage and then it's like a skateboard uh, an autonomous skateboard that can but a skateboard can only go forward and backward this one can go in any direction and spin and rotate and very cool looking wild video the next one is the Apple Ready's new iPhones, uh, which we will cover tomorrow live with Apple in their live stream. And then the next one is Bitcoin down as Sweden's central bank compares Bitcoin to trading in stamps. Cryptocurrencies were broadly down as Sweden's central bank governor said Bitcoin could eventually collapse. And the next one uh, comes from Antonio via Forbes that Amazon is creating a point of sale system think digital cash register like an iPad uh, to compete with Shopify and PayPal what about Square yes very much so here are the five things in technology that happened this week oh that was one of them Amazon's developing a POS system it's called Project Santos and it's Amazon's play to take on Shopify, PayPal, and other point-of-sale systems. According to a report that examined internal documents from the online giant, the system will handle both online and in-store in transactions, provide enhanced analytics, and, of course, integrate with Prime and other Amazon technologies for checkout, 
security and delivery. They should sell these to bookstores all over the world. I'm sure they'll love it. I'm, I'm sure they're not using salt in the wound there. They're not using this data of what you're selling at your store at all in any kind of meaningful way. They don't want to know what people in your city are buying. They don't want to know what that individual's shopping habits are outside of Amazon. I'm sure they're not interested in that data at all. <laughs> not not in the least. I'm sure they they wouldn't give you the they're probably going to give these POS systems away just to track all of that juicy data. You know how much you know how cheap it is to essentially have like a you say like like you're thinking like an iPad configuration, but hell, just get like a cheap little thirty fifty dollar Android tablet. I've run the numbers for this. I'm literally what it costs to basically put one in every single business in different sub vertical markets essentially across the world. It is dirt cheap. I mean, Amazon could just do it as a write off. Put like ten million in, you can get. Well, if you, they cost like 100 bucks each, yeah, you, you just like easily get like 10,000 of these tablets like all over the world. Why not 10,000? 100,000. 100,000 of these tablets. How many businesses could you cover worldwide with $10 million of just getting tablets preloaded with your hardware uh, and your software on there? Just, I mean, just it's practically just put a little nice attractive package, you know, just tap your phone to it to have it on Mac set up with things. You don't even ask, to, ask them to tell them that the, this is going to arrive. It just shows up on the door one day and say, hey, plug this thing in, essentially, and you get $30 of Amazon credit with this thing and a new exclusive customer portal that you can use. It'll be great. They're I mean, going to treat it the way Square treated their little credit card reader. Yeah. Uh, one, one, one fun anecdote in Silicon Valley. Um, it's funny, essentially, uh, like, you know, like like seven, eight years ago. And I, this is probably still the case. I just haven't been there in a while with things. But you walk in the... Uh, uh, you walk in one of the restaurants there, it's like command center of like, you know, some sort of like Star Trek thing is like every single delivery app has essentially like the 12 different iPads and iPhones and, and iPads essentially up on like all these different terminals essentially as they're <laughs> for all the different startups in the region that are all trying to test their own services out. Um, and it was quite remarkable seeing essentially how many and just someone shows up with another one. It's like it just spawns like 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 some sort of alien plague. Um, yeah, and then now it's all over the world in similar places. It's nuts. Now we've got cloud kitchens. What's up next, Tyler? Next one's from RCC. AI weapons are the third revolution in warfare. First there was gunpowder, then nuclear weapons, next artificial intelligent weapons. Sure. From the Atlantic. Then uh, this one from TechCrunch. Tech can help solve U.S. cities' affordability crisis. <laughs> Maria Rio Rio mine contributor. Oh, sh share on Twitter, Marina. Uh, they have problems with their Twitter pulling their unrelevant data into their. It says U.S. cities. Blinking lights decide who owns what. News at eleven. U.S. cities are in the midst of an affordability crisis. Just between May 2020 and May 2021. Home prices saw their biggest annual increase in more than two decades, and construction material prices increased by 24%. The cost of renting has risen faster than renters' incomes for 20 years. Construction needs to play a critical role in fixing these pressing issues, but is the industry ready? Construction is a $10 trillion global industry that employs more than 200 million people worldwide. But despite its size and importance, the industry's annual labor productivity has only increased 0.1% per year since 1947. Since, it's actually dropped in many markets. Since 1947, we've witnessed amazing advances in technology and science. Industries like agriculture, manufacturing, and retail have achieved quantum leaps in productivity with improved bioengineering, increasing yields, and the introduction of cutting-edge logistics bringing affordable consumer goods to the mass market. Labor productivity in these industries increased 8x since 1947 compared with 1x in construction. 
Why amid all this progress and innovation do millions of construction workers in the U.S. still have to rely on manual pen and paper processes for critical parts of their work? Well, because geeks like me don't want to be building solutions for people who can't use tech, as I said early in the program. Hey, Tyler, here's a fun one. If you basically build it, let's just play this fun little scenario. Let's say essentially you basically guarantee that you're going to basically have ownership of this new uh, new giant complex. It's going to be like a big, you know, let's say it's like a $2 billion project with things. But everyone wants to get involved, right? And you basically, you're going to have a 20% stake on this. That's great. Guess what happens if it basically goes 50% over budget, but essentially in the amount of time that that's, that's occurred, when the changeover happens, essentially it's worth that much more because of the real estate prices have gone up the main well. You actually have made more money and have a larger stake in a larger company and a larger development because it was over budget and took longer to develop. When you basically look at how essentially the decision makers make technology choices on what the decisions they make, the assumption for a lot of technologists is people trying to make things better. Um, there is a lot of built-in conflict of interest for a lot of the financiers for a lot of these larger projects that basically, if it's done badly, you actually make more money personally. And that conflict of interest is astounding how normalized it is for a lot of things. And it's tied with a lot of political corruption as well. And the fact that those industry practices are so widespread across so many different markets, it makes me diff it makes it difficult to see how you've got companies like Bluebeam or some of the stuff that AutoCAD's been doing or some of the stuff with like a Pro, a Pro Tools or some of these other like, you know, tech API collaboration packages. They're swimming upstream against things that decision makers that don't really have the best interest to actually make the projects actually cheaper and on time with things. Uh, and you're going to run into that whenever you try to do some new, like I've got friends that are doing like augmented reality technology that can increase construction speed for the, the framing by like, you know, 60%. Good luck getting that adopted when essentially the actual project needs to be delivered at a certain time frame. That's a, there's some weird nuance on these things that really comes out when people basically try to deliver solutions for this industry. Here's a key sentence in this article. We've heavily underinvested in the technology that can help save us from the crisis we face. Historically, entrepreneurs, technologists, and investors haven't spent the time to understand the specific needs and workflows of the construction industry. Exactly right. <laughs> and nor do we want to. That's not an industry we want to get into. Uh, let me explain. We have medtech to get into. MedTech has a lot of data. That's a lot of juicy, sweet, sweet data. Then we have insurance tech to get into. That's a lot of sweet data. We have in, uh, education tech to get into. Those three industries, we're going to keep ourselves plenty busy with those for the next five to six years. We're not going to... The, the, the construction industry, there's very relatively uh, not a lot of data that we can leverage there. That's a demographic we don't want to write software for. We won't get that's that's the that's the 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 urinal that's the toilet that's the you know that's the job nobody wants to do until we're that's like washing the dishes we will get around we have lots of other shit to do uh, let's let's just be frank we're just gonna 3d print everything at that point so let's just not even invest in that shit so tyler one one thing as a contrast point to you, what you're saying when you're talking about augmented reality is like this thing coming down the pipelines the future it's all stuff one of the big underlying things that a lot of people don't realize is there's a lot of missing infrastructure. And this is one of the things that tech companies, why they keep on delaying the classes is because, well, you can create a localized reference frame and make something kind of interesting for like, you know, a room or like recognize a few objects. The real magic for augmented reality comes when you basically got every single object in essentially the entire space, a map essentially marked up uh, a spatial base of the spatial map, essentially. 
The thing is that the groups that have the best data sets for that are typically this interface between the architects and the construction industry with building information models or BIM systems. And the thing about it is because technologists don't want to touch the industry, what ends up happening is you end up having these huge silos of spatial information that they don't really translate really well. What's going to happen here is essentially when you have groups that are able to basically cross that, cross that, 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 that threshold, you're going to start seeing an aggregation, an agglomeration of essentially all the spatial data, and they're going to package that up and become the next, oh, I don't know, like like backend provider of essentially location data services, except it's not last going to be, meter stuff. Yeah, it's from... last meter. It's not going to be essentially I've got a GPS that says I'm roughly on the street corner or roughly on this block. It's going to be we know that you're basically within 10 millimeters of essentially looking at this sign right here because they got that level of precision. And by the way, when you're looking at the augmented reality glasses, you know it's that trash can exactly that you're looking at that has exactly this advertisement or the sign over it. That's the sort of thing you're going to see a lot more of, but that it, it, it's infrastructure work. It's not sexy, but it basically is really important for the long-term future to make this, these technologies work. And you're going to see that very much play a thing with the construction industry. It's just going to see essentially who's going to do the aggregation first. Probably going to be AutoCAD, but we'll see. So the interesting to note that the article was written on TechCrunch by a young female entrepreneur who's focused on the providing solutions for that industry. And she's saying everyone else should do the same. Well, no, keep that to yourself. <laughs> I mean, you might be trying to convince investors that they should focus on that space. Um, but if it's legitimately a, you know, we have much better things to focus on. You can keep that industry all to yourself, Maria. Maria, the, the founder of the prop tech company called Agora Systems, who wrote the, nor, nor, this not this is very unusual that a founder of a startup writes an article on TechCrunch, and so this the fact that this article about hey entrepreneurs and, and investors let's all get excited about uh, construction tech and you hear this uh, uh, and everyone's walking away from whoever at the party just said that it's again it's kind of unusual that a founder CEO writes an article on TechCrunch, and so the fact that they are and they're writing it about this. Maria, come on. I know it's hard to sell, uh, but keep it to yourself. Build that company, prove that there's a market there, and people will be jumping all over it. <laughs> and uh, as soon as you have a successful exit, other entrepreneurs will, you know, I, I don't, I'm not, I, I mean no ill will towards Maria here in writing this article, but it's telling that it's being written by an entrepreneur who's in that space. That's not common that an, that an entrepreneur feels the need to write such an article, uh, but it highlights the fact that we're not interested in that category, which I think Maria understands. There's, there's no total addressable market, so she's writing about it. Well, so when they say essentially the USA is basically going to be spending theoretically trillions of dollars in infrastructure upgrades, it's interesting to go, well, what physically is going to be spent out on that? And and essentially, is there any intersection with that? Because whatever exists right now versus what's going to exist in the future, this is one, you know, potentially one of those intersections. But I, yeah, I, I'm skeptical on, on a lot of these points, but it, it's, it's one point to bring okay, up. Okay, so the Tal Nikkei Japan says the Taliban rolls out the red carpet for the China's Belt and Road Initiative in Afghanistan. F which no doubt they are. That was kind of the whole point. And they're being funded by China uh, in their, you know, it's kind of how China rolls. Same thing they did in um, in Burma with with the coup in Burma. So, um, yeah, no doubt they're rolling out the red carpet. That was the whole plan the whole time. 
So the next one is from Ken from MSN that Apple issues a warning on iPhone camera performance. Oh, about the vibration. We covered that. Facebook to buy $100 million worth of unpaid invoices from 30,000 small businesses owned by minorities. We covered that. Samsung tries recruiting staff in the metaverse. Samsung Electronics is starting to meet with job seekers in the metaverse, a way of reaching out to potential employees in the younger millennial and Gen Z market. Well, TikTok is now... Do- sounds like desperate for headlines here. Yes, and, but TikTok is also working on a hiring platform. And how Target got cozy with the cops, turning black neighbors into suspects. Hey, I called this one earlier. Yeah. Um, Fusion centers. Before police Sergeant Alice White assigns officers to work off-duty at the East Lake Street Target store in South Minneapolis, they get what Target calls values training. Included are specific instructions for greeting customers with a smile and a friendly hello. It's an unusual script for Minneapolis cops who are known for adopting a more intimidating posture. That's certainly been the case at some targets. But in the wake of the murder of George Floyd in May 2020 by Minneapolis police, Target is trying to recalibrate. The 127,000 square foot store in East Lake Street sits about two miles from the corner where George Floyd was killed. And it was among the first buildings ransacked after the murder sparked an uprising across Minneapolis. The scene that night is etched in the minds of target executives, people shoving aside red shopping carts and running out with armfuls of merchandise as sirens blared and police fired tear gas into the air. Hours later across the street, protesters firebombed the third precinct building of the Minneapolis police department four days after Floyd's death as the East Lake Street store lay in ruins and the damage at the nine other targets in the Twin Cities area was still being assessed. Wow. Target's chairman and chief executive officer issued a statement saying his team had wept that not enough was changing in the face of Floyd's murder and other recent killings of black Americans as a team we vowed to face pain with purpose. Target acted decisively. It re- rescued a job training nonprofit in a poor black neighborhood from collapse. It pledged to spend $2 billion by 2025 to help black owned businesses nationally. It announced $10 billion in donations to black civil rights groups and recovery efforts around the country. It funded $700,000 award programs administered by the U.S. Conference of Mayors for Cities, undertaking initiatives related to racial, j- racial, racial justice and police reforms. The East Lake Street store has to be rebuilt. It was designed in construct in consultation with local residents to create environments where black guests feel overtly welcome. And beneath the gleam of the paint tensions linger. A lot of U S companies are evaluating the relationships with the black community, but target is grappling with a particularly raw set of challenges, especially in the hometown of Minneapolis where targets from. In a city with a legacy of racial segregation and police brutality, a yawning income gap between white and black residents and disproportionately high rates of arrest and incarceration of black men, the unrest was in part born of a deeper pain that began well before the police officer took Floyd's life, and that pain bears targets label as well, say community activists, academics, and even some former law enforcement and city officials. It's a... Yeah, so... Can I just, so as a person who lived in Minneapolis for many years, um, so as as the article states, Target is based in Minneapolis. Um, and, you know, it's really interesting because when the murder occurred um, and I saw the 
um, the businesses that were first um, looted and destroyed, as the article mentioned, they were two miles away or you know a few miles away, but they were strategically located at the intersections of major highways. And there have been people who were arrested from outside of Minneapolis who were not African-American for starting some of those um, initial fires and lootings that occurred. I mean, so, so that's just background context. Um, and then the other piece that I would say for people that are not based in the U.S. or not familiar with Target's culture, they, they have a strong community um, commitment. So they, you know, I, I don't know if it's, I think it's 10% of their revenue that they, you know, pour back into the community. So I just wanted to add that for additional context. It says, Always a prodigious user of technology and data, Target was one of the most has one of the most sophisticated security departments among retailers anywhere. An early adopter of surveillance cameras in its stores to combat organized retail theft, in, in part because of the forward thinking of security executives named King Rogers. And Rogers retired. Target stores acquired ever more sophisticated video surveillance systems today as cameras watch over stores, video and security analysis at regional investigation centers can surveil individual shoppers as they move from aisle to aisle. A Target team in Bengaluru, India, crunches data that can yield reports on lost trends for U.S.-based security investigators. And... so. Hmm. Long article. One more thing on this for background context, especially for international folk here with things. Um, so, so this can get, you know, this can go in all sorts of directions. But one thing to bring up is the idea of redlining. The reason I'm bringing this up is that essentially if you took out loans, essentially, depending on one section or another, they basically put all people of one racial minority in one, one section of town and all the people in another. And then what would happen is, is that if you basically, if you're a small business, if you're, you're uh, if you're applying for home loans, they'd literally basically uh, uh, approve or deny it just by essentially the neighborhood, but then the neighborhoods are basically racially segregated. So the reason why this is relevant is that if you go into present day um, average wealth difference between uh, someone that's a black or, or, or a minority group, essentially a white family is basically 120,000 versus 20,000 as average wealth for family stuff. And a lot of this can be traced directly to essentially the, the a lot of those supported by both federal and state governments in concert with essentially local zoning commissions. Uh, zoning codes themselves have a lot of racism attached to that. Now, the reason why it relates to the real estate uh, aspect is that many of the retailers that basically built in um, a, a lot of these areas basically took heavy advantage of the data sets and essentially the loan things for, uh, from that time period. And when you have you know long time frames to to you know that you have differences of this, these groups get loans, these groups don't. They're able to build small businesses versus not, ends up resulting in basically heavy racial segregation for these types of things. So when you have essentially like uh, George Floyd, and you have basically the looting and the thefting going on, there is a longer term like background aspect to that that doesn't get, it's a little more nuanced, it doesn't fit into the quick little sound bites, but it is really important to look at for essentially the, the, the longer term trends here. Here we go with the last one of today. We went through all the tweets. Here it is from Renjanth from Wired UK. Digital nomads are here to save Spain's ghost towns. Among Spain's 8,131 municipalities, 3,403 are class, classed as at high risk of dying out, according to the country's, Whoa. that's 43%. Someone's going to get some bureaucracy reoriented. The dozens of villages across Spain are in terminal decline. No, that's not dozens. That's thousands. <laughs> uh, a new visa scheme aimed at digital nomads 
could revive revive them. You're also going to have to do the one dollar home takeover thing that Italy's been doing. How do you save a dying village? Well, uh, let's pause you right there. Wired uh, Italy is been dealing with this now for about 10 years and they've as many people probably know and you can go on youtube and see lots of videos about the one euro uh, homes in many italian towns including in sicily and really that's nice oh this is very do people are people not aware of this flash your flash your mics if you're not aware that italy has a one euro home program do you do you need to do renovation Aaron. after you pay? One? Yes, you have. <laughs> you have to commit to re re doing some renovation Better within rice. three years. You have three years right, to begin renovating. Right, a house belongs to you. Yes. Oh, that's nice. And depending on the city or the municipality, it has to be done in you know certain ac accordance with the 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 design aesthetics of the Gaudi you know, way. Well, I mean, because a lot of these homes are, you know, they might be a couple hundred years old. So, I mean, you can't just make a contemporary monstrosity yeah. out of, you know, out of a classically designed That's home. okay. The classic is nice. So, for this, this Wired article says, for the small community of Oliet in the mountainous Terrell region of eastern Spain, the answer was olive oil. In May 2014, the local community started... Uh, something to adopt an olive tree uh, to allow anyone in the world to sponsor an abandoned olive tree for 50 euros. The money raised has been used to fund an NGO that has created 13 jobs for people in the village. In return, sponsors get two liters of olive oil per year and hopefully forge a bond with the village. To date, some 7,000 people have sponsored a tree with many visiting to find out more about life in the region, new arrivals to the village have even saved a school from closing, raising the student population from four <laughs> when the project started to 13 today. But with the population of just 343, the, the town still in terminal decline. Spain's draft startup act, which has passed by the cabinet in July, but has yet to re receive parliamentary approval, aims to encourage digital nomads to repopulate rural villages among Spain's. 8,131 municipalities, 3,403 are classed at risk of dying out. According to the country's National Statistics Institute, the digital nomad visa will be available from Spanish consulates around the world for workers from outside the European Union and because people in the EU don't need a visa at all. And once a person is living and working in Spain, they can apply for a residence permit to extend their stay for two years, which can then be renewed for another two years. Like other countries which have introduced nomad visas, Spain wants to lure foreign workers with tax incentives. They can pay the Spanish non-resident tax rate of 24% on incomes of up to 600,000 euros. By comparison, Spanish residential tax rates vary, but can be as high as 45% on top of, on top earners. It may still it may still be amended, but the Startup Act has been greeted with support by most major politician par political parties in Spain who see it as a way to help what is known as España Vacida, or emptied Spain. Uh, as villages uh, need all the help they can get, this 
this is farming country where people live off the land and raise sheep and pigs. Sun, sea, and sand, this is not, but might just be the attraction for many digital nomads searching for tranquility, the chance to get closer to nature, or perhaps find a real Spain, whatever that might be. And, um, yeah, so Spain, Spain joining the list of nations trying to attract digital nomads or people who can work anywhere, live anywhere, as more and more people can. And then we had that article recently about how expensive housing is getting in some areas. We just need to redistribute ourselves as there are parts of Europe, like Spain and Italy, with thousands of dying towns where they will give you a place to live. In Spain and Italy, they have good food. Yeah, not bad. And but, but one thing, just did you say twenty four percent tax income tax? That's pretty. High. Yeah, it is. But uh, in Spain, it really depends on how much you report. And if, the question is, if you're a digital nomad, how would they know that you made any money? Because they got the Bitcoin registry, where you tell the government exactly how much Bitcoin you've always had. <laughs> so anyway. Um, you can add, if for those who are interested, it's called, what was the name here? Startup Act. You're going to tweet it, right? Yes. Tweet I it, tweeted right? out the article, um, and the article has the link about the Startup Act. The Spanish government's rolled out a draft bill that aims to attract digital foreign nomads with specific, with a special visa, incentives for startups and investors, as well as less personal income tax for non-residential remote workers on July 6th. The it's called the Startups Law. If approved, the new law will provide tax incentives for the creation of startups in hopes to attract foreign companies to establish themselves in Spain. It also aims to entice foreign remote workers and digital nomads to choose Spain as their base by creating a new special visa for them and giving them the ability to access a reduction in the rate of non-resident tax. Do they include anywhere in the article like exciting new things or enticing people aside from the, the housing prices? Like like things like maybe like, hey, we essentially have some new data protection laws or hey, we've got essentially some exciting new things. We're going to be centralizing like all of the, the spatial information from our census records or hey, we're going to be doing no, it's this. All, it's all thing. EU on that front. Yeah. Yeah. But th th this is where it gets really interesting. As some country out there, hello, Moldova, are you listening? Um to become the crypto utopia. Although El Salvador by legalizing Bitcoin kind of jumped on that train. But if you made a, a truly, you know, wild west uh, for all things crypto, you you know, you get all kinds of all these crypto nuts coming from everywhere. And, but it doesn't have to be just that. There's a there's a huge group of really smart folks like Balaji, who is really hot on this whole tip of making a new kind of nation building. You also have Joe Lonsdale out of Texas, who's worth an incredible amount of money. You have a lot of very wealthy geeks who want to create a new government. Tyler, yes. You know, it's really interesting. The news that came across over the weekend about the Ukraine. Yes. Right? And the Ukraine being friendly for crypto. Yes. Uh, I wonder if people, I mean, I don't know if people are noticing that the Ukraine is connected to the the DCFTA with the EU as of as of 2016, so it's very interesting because they've just agreed, they've just approved or agreed to crypto, and it is also part of the European Union Association agreement. 
So it is, you, this is the big argument with Ukraine and Russia. Is, this is the big challenge here is that Ukraine is connected into the EU where it, it actually does have relationships. So it will be very interesting to see how is the possibility that the Ukraine could become something like a crypto Estonia. That would be very interesting to see. Yeah. Because, you know, the digital nomads and digital residency in Estonia allows you to have like the lowest tax rates, which I think is 21% or 19% last time I checked. Yeah. So it is actually lower than Spain. Yep. And it is like a digital hub for a lot of people. But the digital nomad philosophy is they like to go where there's sea and sun and, yeah. you know, like Thailand, yeah. like Bali. Yeah. So it'd be interesting to see how Italy, which is an Italy, which is older, will gravitate them to be living inland. Well, by the way, because most of the there, there was a headline today that parts of Spain had to be evacuated due to fires and. And that was inland. Yeah, my, that, this is my point is you have to be very conscious of, although this isn't for buying land and living there, but if you do the $1 housing thing, it's like you have to look at the water stress map of where the water is disappearing. Like you have regular summer temperatures now of above 40 degrees Celsius, you know, 110 degree weather in Spain now quite regularly. So if you're not by the ocean, Many parts of Italy was on fire yeah. too, right? Spain was Spain and Turkey was it was crazy. The whole region's gonna get so we've got yeah. like a fireside sale going on. Yeah. Italy, Sicily, very, remember very Sicily? It's inland. Sicily, no Sicily breeze. is a it's a Mediterranean weather, right? But it's the hottest recorded this year, yep. I think. But that brings us to the end third oh Jesus, we're we're now coming up to the top of the hour. But we will pause and we will join again in about five hours so or join us tomorrow and thank you everybody we will catch you soon happy monday everybody